Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Dad, Raw Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're back with another episode of The Rad Rap, where we watch a series of films with a common thread, unpack our thoughts and feelings on each film, name the dads of the series, share what we took away from it, and declare the series radically wrapped. This time, we're talking about The Hunger Games. Mmm, a hungy. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a new Hunger Games film just came out, and we thought, what, 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 what's better than now to revisit the previous films and go see this new one, and then break it all down. Before we get into it, a reminder that this episode is going to be spoiler filled. But in our regular episode, we mentioned that we were going to keep spoilers about the final film that just came out, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. We're gonna not talk about any spoilers prior to talking about the film proper so you can stick around until then if you haven't seen it but there's going to be a lot of spoilers about all of the films so be warned so before we start talking about the films why don't you talk a little bit about your history with the hunger games yes yes so i am a reader brag yep very good at reading have a lot of books <laughs> I teach English, brag. <laughs> but this was, you know, I don't feel like I'm too pretentious when it comes to reading, but sometimes when like something has taken the world by storm, I'm like, eh, never read Twilight. Mm. Um, I tried to read it in French. It didn't work. Mm. I wasn't good enough at French. Mm. I was like, oh, maybe I can read these books in French and then because it'll be easy enough, but it wasn't. I'm not skilled enough at the language. Um, but these books, uh, everyone in my family had been reading them and my sister owned them all. Cause she's definitely one to like go out and just buy something when she wants it. Um, and we were, we were living in the first place we lived when we had moved out and I got really sick with strep throat. I was just like down for the count, but you know, 
when you're sick, it's not like you just sleep the whole time, especially when it's something like strep throat. You're not really tired. You're just in pain. Um, and so my sister came and dropped off all three of the books and I read them all in like a weekend. I don't think I knew this. That's nice. Well, this when we first moved out, like you were, we were both in school. So you were probably like working at Apple like you did after like a long day at the fine arts campus. Yeah. And then doing homework. But yeah, I just kind of like slunked on the couch and read all three of them. And, and I, they were the perfect balm for being sick because I got totally caught up in it. And because I didn't read them as they came out, but read them when they were all out, I could just bam, bam, bam one after the other. Mm. Um, and so it was kind of like when you binge a TV series and you're so caught up in it and you love it so much, but you go through it so fast that like you remember it fondly, but you don't remember the details. Right. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I feel like if I had read them as they were released and then probably like reread like Catching Fire in the Hunger Games before Mockingjay, I probably would remember the books better. Yeah. Instead, I just read them in a whirlwind, whirlwind weekend when I was very sick. I remember that being awesome and I remember loving them and that's about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't have as nice of a past with them. I have not read the books, but we went. <laughs> Greg. <laughs> yeah, I don't fucking read. Um, but we we did go see all the movies together and we were reminded this week because we have a, a scrapbook that is an ongoing thing we've been building for years and years where we're putting in all of our movie stubs or as many of the movie stubs as we can of all the films that we've gone to the theater to see. And we were working on it this week and we were tickled to find ticket stubs for all of the Hunger Games movies when we went to see them in the theater. So that was a reminder that it has been something that we both went out and saw together and enjoyed together. And I really enjoyed the films. I, I really liked them when we went and saw them, but haven't revisited the, revisited them in a really long time. Yeah, and I don't feel like when we would go see them in the theater, we would rewatch the previous ones. I think we would just go see them in the theater. Yeah, I think that was the case. And I think that we did that because I don't remember us ever rewatching specifically the Mockingjay movies since going to see them in the theater. So this experience helped really fill in some blanks, especially even going to see the new one that just came out. I was picking up on things that I think if we didn't do a rewatch prior to going to this new one, I would have been over my head. Totally. Yeah. Um, so I really like that we revisited it now and they all hit in a different way. Let's get into it. And we kick things off, of course, with the 2012 action-adventure sci-fi, The Hunger Games. It was directed by Pleasantville's own Gary Ross. And it was written by Gary Ross, as well as Suzanne Collins and Billy Ray. They all did the screenplay, and then Suzanne Collins wrote the novel that this was based on. It stars Jennifer Lawrence as Katniss Everdeen, Josh Hutcherson as Peta Malark, Liam Hemsworth as Gail Hawthorne, Stanley Tucci as Caesar Flickerman, Wes Bentley as Seneca Crane, Willow Shields as Primrose Everdeen, Elizabeth Banks as Effie Trinket, Woody Harrelson as Hamish Abernathy, Toby Jones as Claudius Templesmith. I'm going through a lot of these because they're just going to be a lot of repeats. So buckle up. Isabel Furman, the orphan herself as Clove, 
Lenny Kravitz as Cinna, Amanda Stenberg as Rue, and Big Donald Southey. We love him. We love his butt as President Snow. Synopsis. Katniss Everdeen voluntarily takes her sister's place in the Hunger Games, a televised competition in which two teenagers from each of the 12 districts of Penem are chosen at random to fight to the death. Okay, what do you think of the Hunger Games? Okay, the Hunger Games are weird because I really like them actually quite a lot, and yet they're not something I've revisited a ton. Mm -hmm. I think I like the concept of them, and then when I engage with them, I'm like, they're pretty good, Mm -hmm. but people hate them. Really? People on my letterbox hate them. They're all like, two stars. I'm like, I don't think they're that bad. But all right. I actually think they're pretty good. Oh. So revisiting this first one, and because I haven't read the books except that one time, um, I'm not really going to feel compelled to compare them to the books too much. I feel like the first film builds the world, and it's quite an expansive world with a lot of history with a lot of politics, with like different dynamics, not just between the capital and the districts, but between the districts and what each of them do, and then the history of these games. And I feel like this movie does a really good job of impressively creating that world without taking too long mm. and without like expositioning to hell. Yeah. I feel like there's some areas, and this is an area this is something that I really appreciate about all four films, all five films, is I feel like there's a lot of just if you get it, great. And if you miss it, that's okay. But we don't feel the need to hold your hand through all of it. Yeah. Which is especially refreshing and surprising for a YA film. Yes. An adaptation of YA books. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and then on top of that, I think that especially what's so compelling about the first three books and first four films is the characters. I think Suzanne Collins made these incredibly developed characters that she knew inside and out. And I feel like this first film just hits the mark on who they all are. And I think they're cast excellently. Oh yeah. It'll come up time and time again. The casting that they have for these movies is nuts. And even when they cast someone famous, I'm never taken out of it. Um, Yeah. I just think that this first film really helps us understand like, the world of Panem and the capital and the Hunger Games and the districts and then all of these characters within them in a way that kind of they're both building in tandem in a really rich way. Yeah. And I mean, they do so so many things to establish who characters are. I mean, you learn everything that you need to know about Katniss with her volunteering as tribute in place of her sister. And I truly think that scene is one of the most like chilling, powerful moments in cinema, mm-hmm. honestly. And it's something that you and I say a fair amount in our house. I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> <laughs> but in that moment, Jennifer Lawrence just knocks it out of the park. And it's just you, like you feel her pain. You feel her desperation. The way that then, I mean, the little one that plays Prim does a great job of acting afterwards where she's just like so upset that her sister did this. Um, I think it does such a good job of immediately establishing the coldness of the Capitol mm-hmm. and juxtaposing that with how ridiculous Effie is, mm-hmm. right? Effie's there being like, oh, the games are fun. Ooh, you know, <laughs> with her like yeah. over the top outfit and makeup as all of these 
people in district 12 are in just like gray work clothes. Um, I think it just says so much about like everything that these movies are going to be about without having like a narration over the top about the history of Pan Am, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, and I think as the film goes on and you learn that Hamish is the only surviving victor of the Hunger Games from District 12 and you can only participate in the Hunger Games when you're a teenager. It just shows that basically every year District 12 is sending two people off to die. Mm -hmm. And after 74 years of that in this film, I feel like you would feel desensitized to it because it's so unbelievable at this point that you're just like, fuck, like unless you're immediately related to that person, you're just like, we're about to lose two more people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I spe- you feel it. I mean, we'll probably speak on it a couple times, but like Jennifer Lawrence, lover or hater, she's an amazing actress. Yeah. And that the scene that immediately follows this where she's in the room and her mom, Gail and Prim, like come to see her off essentially that exchange she has with her mom is super powerful. I've just like, you can't shut off again. Like not after what happened with dad. And it's just like, it's all business with her mom. It's all emotional with prim and Gail's there too. <laughs> oh, Gail. I feel like, so I read um, a little bit about the casting of Jennifer Lawrence and I guess Suzanne Collins was just like, when she saw Jennifer Lawrence, she was like, yep, this is Katniss. And so this is a quote from Suzanne Collins, who was who has been really involved in all of the movies, but particularly this first one where she helped write the screenplay. She's been a producer on all of them. And she didn't write any other screenplay? No, just this one. Oh. Um, she's listed as a writer in all of the other ones, but it's because she wrote the books. Okay. Um, but she said about casting Jennifer Lawrence, quote, the role demanded a certain maturity and power. Jennifer Lawrence was the only one who truly captured the character I wrote in the book. Every essential quality necessary to play Katniss. Yeah, I mean, as someone who hasn't read the books, I feel that. Like, I feel the depth of a character whenever I watch Jennifer Lawrence playing Katniss. And what I I read online, too, that when she was offered the part, she took a while to decide if she wanted to take it because she knew that this was going to be, like, a role that lasted a long time and that this catapults you into a certain, like, arena of stardom that she wasn't sure she was ready for. So I also think that that's really beautiful and shows like a maturity to be like, okay, I've been offered this. Do I truly want it? And taking Mm -hmm. time to reflect on that before you say yes. So um, I don't know. I feel like Jennifer Lawrence, I really feel for the discourse around her over the years because I feel like she's both been like the person everybody loves. And then because everybody loved her, now we all hate her because like everybody loves Jennifer Lawrence. So now we have to hate her. And, you know, she's kind of resurfaced in this more subtle way in the last handful of years. I really loved her work in Causeway. Um, we've watched a couple interviews with her lately and I just, I just like yeah. her. And like no hard feelings was great. Yeah. Like, super fun. I, and like I admittedly, and I think I've spoken about this on the show. Like I followed that, I I think I followed that same kind of path where I think I just kind of caught the runoff of all of the shitty detritus that was being said about her. And I fell into the trappings of that probably without much reason, maybe because she was like starting to star in movies with Chris Pratt and he followed a similar path, but he's also, he's a real doink in, in real life. So 
I think I unfair I was unfair to Jennifer Lawrence and my thoughts about her and my feelings about her because I actually really like her as an actress and and I think that she's a cool person in the interviews that you that we've watched like she's you said. She's funny and she seems like a real human being. Yeah. Which is nice. Yeah, 100%. And I think that that's really I agree with you. Like that's really cool that she took the time to be like, okay, this could catapult me into another level of celebrity and stardom or it it could also ruin me and i think that that's tough like i feel like if we're talking about ya series i feel like very i i had a conversation just earlier this week with uh, a friend of ours that it's been, i think it's been tough for robert pattinson and kristen stewart to kind of shake off the twilight of it all and then they've paved amazing careers and they're both amazing actors post twilight but i think that there's always going to be that twilight that follows them along and that's what people associate with them you see that with the harry potter actors as well right yeah like especially when it's it's not just one film it's a series of films and it's over like over a span of years i mean i think what's great for jennifer lawrence in this is that bam, 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 and they were done. Whereas yeah. if you look at Harry Potter, like those kids, they couldn't really do anything else over the years because they were committed to this series. Um, and even Twilight, I, I don't think that they came out quite as fast, but I'm not as familiar with those books. I agree. Or those movies, rather. Um, to get back to this, though, I d- not just the casting of like the main three, and I mean, I don't even know if I would call Gale part of the main three because he's not really all that important until yeah. the Mockingjay movies. He's there. He's there. But I think the secondary characters are so well cast mm. and you can just feel a commitment from them. Um, I think Lenny Kravitz's Cinna is incredible. He's like kind of a serious black type in the books where mm. you just love him and he's a mentor. and He can dress me and kiss me anytime he wants. Oh, yeah. He's so just like quietly solid. Yeah. And it's, it's really lovely. And again, I feel like the films find this balance of like, yes, a lot of these characters were more developed and had more time and space in the books. Mm -hmm. And yet they find the ways to show exactly who they are without feeling like they need to overdo it. Mostly. Um, I love Woody Harrelson. I don't know why, but I really do. And I think he's really, really great as Hamish. And I think, um, that first scene on the train with Hamish and Effie and Peta and Katniss really just solidifies not only all four of their characters and who they are, but who they are in relation to each other. Yeah. I think that Woody Harrelson gives off just dad energy in a lot of more recent <laughs> roles yeah. of his. Uh, and I think that that's what makes him so endearing. But I agree. Like, we get everything we need to know. Like the characterization is spot on in this. Everything we need to know about Hamish, uh, Hamish, and then Effie as well. I also think that Stanley Tucci is pitch perfect in this. Oh yeah, I mean, even just down to his iconic like looking to the side until the lights come up, and then like the big smile, and <laughs> and I think that that's one of the things I was so drawn to when I read the books, and I think that the first two films do so so well is interrogate the concept of spectacle Mm -hmm. which is something that i'm really fascinated in because the idea of spectacle 
as a tool of state control is really old. Mm -hmm. Like one of the key ways, and you know, this is going back to my um, university days when I studied Foucault and, and read uh, parts of discipline and punish. But in that, you know, Foucault is detailing this like movement from spectacle as punishment to surveillance as punishment and state control. But thinking about how there used to be public executions and mm-hmm. like, public drawing and quartering and all of this, you know, I feel like when um, Margaret Atwood talks about how she created The Handmaid's Tale from things that have already happened in the world and kind of combined them together, I feel like, you know, there's a lot in The Hunger Games that feels true to that as well, that yes, Suzanne Collins has created this particular dystopian future world, but she's pulling from things that have either already happened in history or are currently happening. And, you know, I saw somebody's letterbox review, somebody I follow who said, I hate that I know if I was a capital citizen, I would love the Hunger Games. Yeah. That I would want to watch the Hunger Games, that I would have somebody I was rooting for. And I think the films do such a good job. And I don't think they always get enough credit, the books and the films, for like actually having this really complex, intelligent exploration of state control and how and the tools that the state uses to control and oppress. Mm -hmm. And I think when you consider that these are films that are being watched and books that are being read by like younger folks or people who maybe, you know, aren't going to read Foucault, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. um, That's actually really powerful to have this kind of a exploration in this medium. Oh yeah. Like that's what I was drawn to when I read them on my sick days on the couch. I was like, these are smart books and they have something to say. And, uh, if I had read these when I was, you know, younger, if they had existed when I was really young, this probably would have been like a stoking of some rebellious social justice sentiment in me, even if it's just a starting point. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. Like, that's so fucking cool to get that from a, a YA book. Like Suzanne Collins is clearly very smart and wanted to pull from real life. And a YA book with a woman at the center. With a girl at the center, right? Like, yeah. even when you look at other YA series um, written by women, it's usually still, or if you, in the case of Twilight, it's not about rebellion and social justice, or maybe I'm not one to speak on them because I haven't read the books and I haven't seen all of the movies, but it seems to be more about like the romance. Mm-hmm. It's more YA romance. Um, or if you look at Harry Potter, I mean, yes, Hermione's there, but Harry is certainly the main character. Um, something like, the outsiders with se hinton right like a lot of these ya texts that are written by women are still centered on boys mm-hmm. um and there might be great female characters or great girl characters in secondary roles but to have a ya series written by a woman that is about the power of a young young woman i think is really cool mm-hmm. and then be- on top of that to have it be political yeah. Even if it's kind of like entry level political, I do think the Hunger Games have some really smart things to say. And we'll probably talk about this more when we get to Mockingjay, but a lot of what's going on in them feels relevant to what's happening right now. And if that could be a conduit between a parent and a young child or even a young adult and their parent, because that tends to be right now who's not listening mm-hmm. to be like, hey, if you're upset by this, like, do you know what's going on in Palestine right now? Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that there's a lot of smart starting conversation points and entry points for people here to then go on and want to learn more about social justice and the history of state control and contemporary ways that this is happening and fears for the future and 
what people can do to educate themselves and challenge that. Yeah, hundred percent. That's well said. Um, and I feel like watching this now as an adult, like you kind of, you, you spoke to it a little bit there of just this film can, it re- at least on this watch, it revealed this whole series of films revealed to me where I would be if I were in these different situations. I totally agree. I think that if we were living in the capital, we would totally watch the Hunger Games and have our favorites. But I can also see everything that's set up in this world and with the characters and like the the rally cry that happens behind Katniss by the end of this film, like this rally cry for rebellion, I would totally get behind without hesitation if I lived in the districts. And I would want to believe in something and in something like Katniss that would give me some hope and maybe be start becoming a beacon for the future. It, it, it hits different. <laughs> and I, I love, this is why I love YA shit so much. Yeah. Because it, it does these things earnestly. Yeah. And without like, for, I think for the most part, fear of not being intelligent enough. And it really ticks me off when people just, uncritically hate on these things because I personally believe anything that gets people reading or anything that gets people engaged in media, especially if it can be the starting point for like bigger conversations and, and further learning down the road is like a major win. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the like denigration of the hunger games, both as books and as movies. I'm like, is it because it's about a woman? Is it because it's about a girl? Um, and I think like I think Jennifer Lawrence kills it. I think mm-hmm. the character of Katniss is one of the best characters that's been written and that's been portrayed on screen. And I think she does such a great job of it. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly for me, once we actually get into the Hunger Games proper, even though they're kind of like the draw, it's actually where I find the movie the most boring. Oh, interesting. Like at first I'm like excited and then I'm like, okay, let's wrap it up. Okay. You like the Hunger Games. I do. And I think... I find it really compelling because we are so locked in on Katniss and we are with her and her experience in the Hunger Games is our experience in the Hunger Games. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about specifically the Hunger Games section of the film, but kind of the execution of the film overall. Like this is Gary Ross's only entry. Francis Lawrence directs the rest of the films in the series. But the approach to this film, it feels so gritty and weighty and human and it's a lot of handicap stuff. So it's just very chaotic. Uh, And this ramps up, especially once the games actually start. But I think that all lends itself really well to world development in a way that the other films didn't need to do that. And I think some of the camera work and all that is improved on in the subsequent films but I feel like the work that was done here really helps establish character in the world that we're in, which I really, really liked. I think that one of my favorite sequences in the whole series is in this film. It's as soon as the games start and they all come up around the cornucopia and then there's the countdown and then it goes silent and there's mm. just like an ear ringing, ringing um, sound effect over top. And everybody starts running and it's chaos and people start killing each other and people are running to the woods. People are running for weapons, but it's just silent. And it's just like, it lets you as the viewer just sit in how fucked up this is. And you feel like a spectator 
and it makes you feel sick to your stomach. And I think it's one of the most powerful decisions just to like cut out the sound and focus on the people. Well, I mean, and these books have been banned mm. by people who are like, it's children killing children. Like, no, in a way that like Lord of the Flies has been banned. Um, which the funny thing is, is like the film is ultimately critiquing that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think making a point about the ways that we symbolically and literally kill children and have historically and in the contemporary moment, um, definitely through YA and dystopia, which is like often where these kind of social commentaries come as in the dystopian genre. But I agree. I, th I do think like the beginning of the game is incredibly strong and I'm impressed with the way that actually all the films in the series managed to take what's a first person narrative where we're so much in Katniss's head and yet translate that to, for the most part, we're with her. I think where it chooses to pull out from just Katniss's perspective is really smart. I think the expansion of like kind of the gamekeepers and the um, like the game control center and, mm. you know, reactions of people to what's happening in the games enhances that idea of spectacle and who is the spectacle for mm -hmm. um, in ways that kind of remind me of like Cabin in the Woods yeah. uh, that I oh, like. Totally. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the character of um, Seneca, Seneca Crane, I think his name is mm -hmm. played by West Bentley. West Bentley. Um, he's just such a piss boy. Oh, big time. I you fuck just it. hate him. You oh, hate his facial hair. I do. But oh my God, when she fucking hits that apple with the arrow and then does this like a bow that we see later in the series. That's one of, again, that's another one of the highlights of this series. I, I think this movie fucking rips. I will say <laughs> like this. I, re I also remember this one the most because I think I've seen it the most. I, I think this movie is, is really awesome. It's, it's definitely a, like up there as one of my favorites of the series. But yeah, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. But yeah. I also think you can't um, talk about the first Hunger Games without talking about the stuff with Rue. Mm -hmm. um, it's so interesting to see like like little baby Amanda Stenberg, who's like such a queer icon now, and um, it was great. And bodies, a, bodies, yeah, bodies. she's a real like take no um, fucks, give no fucks person in real life who will just like challenge the system. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you followed this or if you remember this at all, but when this movie came out. I was I was really into Twitter at the time mm -hmm. um, and Twitter wasn't quite as toxic as it's become. Um, but there was a lot of really awful comments and then some really thoughtful discourse arising out of those comments about people who hadn't realized Rue was black in the books. Mm. And she is very clearly Suzanne Collins. Like the books are diverse mm -hmm. um, and Suzanne Collins makes that clear. And they felt like angry that they had been tricked into caring about the death of a black girl. That's nasty. It was really nasty. And it was, I remember feeling like really upset at the time and following um, this conversation where people were like, you know, calling, I'm sure, I don't even know if the language of woke was a thing at the time, but like saying that like Rue shouldn't have been black and other people being like, she was black in the books. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. what are you talking about? And just... It was just awful. Um, that's that's even that's made even more shitty because the stuff with Rune Katniss is a highlight of absolute beauty in this film. 
and in this story. And it hits so hard, even having seen this film a few times. When you realize that fucking Jack Quaid hit Rue with the, the spear that he threw, it's, it's crushing. And then like, again, another great moment for Jennifer Lawrence is after she kind of lays Rue to rest and puts all the beautiful flowers around her. There's a moment of just like Katniss alone and she's just like sobbing uncontrollably by herself. And that's a moment you didn't need to put in there, but it deepens the character of Katniss and who she is. Um, I'm just a friggin' sucker for like people coming together. And so that moment when she, you know, honors Rue and it's been so clear to anyone who's been watching the games closely that to me, had she made it to the end with Rue, she would have killed herself to 100%. let Rue live. Like, oh yeah, and and the books make it really, really obvious that like she sees a lot of her sister in Rue, 100%. and like she sees a girl who nobody volunteered for mm-hmm. and was thrown into the games, and like that could have been Prim, and she would have wanted somebody to take Prim under their wing and protect them. And I mean, Rue really like Rue saves her life mm-hmm. after she gets tracker jacketed or whatever can't remember what those are called yeah cracker jacks i don't know (laughs) cracker jacks (laughs) but that moment after she you know puts these flowers around her and kind of honors her in death in a way that you know the bodies of these dead children are usually not given any dignity in death they're just spectacle and she challenges that and then she gives the the salute like from district 12 that you know all of her people give back to her when she volunteers for prim and she, she offers it to district district 11 there. Like it's her honoring Rue and honoring the people of district 11. And then when we cut to district 11 and see them doing it back, mm-hmm. it is so powerful. Like it gives me the chills and yeah. it never fails for the rest of the series. When people like when a group of people do that salute, mm-hmm. it gives me chills every time because you know, I'll I'll wait and talk about this in, in the second film, but there's a motif that I like that exists in this film that exists in other films, and I think that that's such a great uh, moment of showing that visually. Mm-hmm. I love it, and I think that Little Rue is just such a beautiful character, and I'm glad that the filmmakers did not worry about racism. I'm sure that ha- wasn't easy on Amanda Stenberg. Oh, 100%. That's really shitty. Um and I don't doubt has contributed to the reason that she's so badass now. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just like, fuck you guys. If you would treat me like this when I'm a little girl, I'm not giving anybody the time of day now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, yeah, that is such a powerful part of the films. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sure we'll get into more PETA and Gale shit in the future, but I will say in this film, the whole PETA painting his face thing to look like a rock <laughs> made me laugh so hard. <laughs> PETA's art. Peter's art and bread. Um, yeah, I also love that everybody in the capital. You said this is like clearly gender fluid and will just like sleep with everyone. Yeah, these are like, like real polyamory bisexual films. Oh yeah, I think. I yeah. I think these are super gay movies. Personally. Yeah, honestly, everyone in the capital looks like they fuck each other all the time. <laughs> yeah, and they also look like they're like non-binary. Yeah. Or at least, like, don't give a shit about gender. Gender oh, don't matter to them. Yeah. 
Just killing kids. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's it. Uh, what about snow? Snow is such a key part of all of the films and especially this most recent one. What do you think about Donnie Southey? We've well, seen his butt. Yeah. Not in these movies. They, Go listen to our episode on Don't Look Now if you want to hear a lot about Donald Sutherland's butt. But this film does end on a shot of his butt. Clothed butt. Cl- yeah. So don't get too excited. <laughs> um, He's very underplayed in this film. Like he plays a he's a he's on screen a lot more and plays a bigger role in subsequent films. But I think that for as much as he's not on screen here, you feel his presence and you feel his yeah. you feel his influence on everything that's going on. And that he clearly has everybody, no matter where they're from, under his thumb. Yeah, he so this is so interesting to me because Donald Sutherland, I feel like is a pretty big deal actor. Yeah. I don't know if I feel that way because I'm Canadian, but um he apparently wrote a letter about wanting to play snow. Oh. That got him the role and was like in depth about like the importance of snow to like the series that actually led to the filmmakers incorporating some of his ideas because so much of the first or all of the books are first person, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot that we don't get to know. There's a lot of Katniss guessing at things or, you know, even in the books, there's no like we don't know that the Capitol sent this cannonball to like get her back into the center. That's her guessing that. Mm -hmm. But in the films we do because we go into like the game center. Mm -hmm. And so Snow can't have as much of a role in the first book because we're just with Katniss in the Hunger Games and Snow doesn't yet know that Katniss is like a worry. Mm -hmm. So I like that they, I think that's cool that Donald Sutherland like liked the character enough. Um, I also, again, if, you need another reason not to pee pee poo poo YA stuff. Donald Southey's out here reading YA stuff. Yeah, and being like, I want that character. I want to play Snow. And I feel like that from everyone who's in it, I feel like they actually like the characters, like the source material, and are invested in making a good a good movie that becomes a good series. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I I really like this first movie. It's a strong opener for the series. I think the ending with um Seneca like you know, Seneca having messed up and allowing um, Peta and Katniss to both survive. And it's a powerful moment. Like when Katniss is taking a gamble, <laughs> like oh, she yeah. does that strategically with the berries to, to play chicken essentially with yeah, the capital, but, yeah. but I think she would eat them. Oh, a hundred percent. But think- she's hoping she doesn't have to. Um, yeah. And that moment where we just like have Seneca locked in the room and then there's that like pan up until we see the bowl of berries is such a chilling way to show us who snow is. And again, trusting that the audience will get it Yeah, without having somebody be like, Oh, did you hear snow killed Seneca with some poison berries? Like we just get it visually. And I think that there's a lot of trust in the audience that will understand and therefore the emotional beats hit harder because mm-hmm. they're not being verbally explained to us. And I think that that's, I, th- I find that ending chilling. It's so good. And it, even just that on the nose stuff of like, there can be two winners this year. Update, only one winner this year. Like that, as an audience member, you're so invested by that point. You're just like, what? Fuck, no. Are you serious? This sucks. And then Katniss being like flipping the birds and then, <laughs> and then like, let's eat the berries. <laughs> like it's, it's just, movie shit that just works for me yeah and it's 
it's really, really good. I, I, I really like this film. I think it's a strong opener. It's one of my favorite in the series. Yeah. How does it make you feel? Makes me feel riveted and disturbed by the spectacle. How about you? Made me feel prepared to raise three fingers in the air and start practice, practicing my Mockingjay whistle. <laughs> we have been trying that a lot. We really can't get the... The last note. Yeah. It's real low. <laughs> Pretty good. It's not too bad. I can't do it. <laughs> Try. <laughs> I can't do that last <laughs> that, That's not too bad, not though. Not bad. You're getting there. Okay, oh. let's go to Catching Fire. Uh, 2013, they just pumped these out one, out one after the other. Lionsgate, man. They did it with the Saw movies. They They're did doing it with, it with these. these. <laughs> so my plan here is to not repeat any casting information that we already have. So, and just to say that Suzanne Collins wrote all of the original books. So we're just giving new information here. So this film is directed by Francis Lawrence. It was written by Simon Bufoy and Michael Arndt. And some new additions to the casting are Philip Seymour Hoffman as Plutarch Heavensby, Sam Claflin as Finnick O'Dare, Lynn Cohen as Megs, Jenna Malone as Johanna, Joanna Mason, and Jeffrey Wright as Beattie. Synopsis. Katniss Everdeen and Peter Malark become targets of the capital after their victory in the 74th Hunger Games sparks a rebellion in the districts of Panem. What do you think of Catching Fire? I think that this one does a really great job of building on the momentum of the first film. We are a little bit, some time has passed between the two films, but I feel like we're, we're dropped right in. I don't feel like, again, there's a lot of handholding. I feel like there's trust in the audience that you'll just pick it up as, as things are going along. I feel like something would, that would be really great about the hunger Games series is I'd love to see an unrated version. <laughs> <laughs> Red band. Yeah, I did keep saying, when are they going to fuck? <laughs> and they didn't. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, I swear they did in the book. But maybe they didn't. This film, even more than the last film, like I love that it's just Katniss whistles her Mockingjay theme and like flips two birds on each hand. And... I think that like you put this really well when you're after we were done watching it. Like this is the this film I think actively and is truly the start of the rebellion. And nothing gets me more than just some pure stick it to the maniosis. Yeah, me too. This is I mean, when there's a series, especially a trilogy, and the second one is about like an uprising, it's often my favorite. Yeah. So this was my favorite book. It's also my favorite of the four original films. I just love a people coming together and like being inspired by each other mm -hmm. to take down an oppressive system. Um, and the first film so clearly set up that the system is oppressive and that it should be taken down. And now we see people being inspired by Katniss and others yeah. to challenge the system. I think something that this film does really well um, this is not as bleak as the two Mockingjay films are, but it starts to show you the individual cost of being a part of the collective. Well, yeah, and, and it also just starts to really show the oppressiveness of the capital and Snow's reach. Like, as Katniss and Peter are doing their tour, like, they're fucking just executing people in front of them for doing well, exactly. anything. And, I and like, Snow like pimps into district 12 and like has that one-on-one -on -one 
with Katniss, I'll also say to that too, there, I feel like in this film, the dialogue is fucking top tier. Oh yeah. I think the, the line when Snow and Katniss have their conversation when he shows up in 12 and he basically says like, you need to, you need to do what I ask and we're not going to lie to each other. And this is like a key point that comes back at the end of the series um, or the original series. And Katniss says like, wow, it must be a pretty fragile system if it can be taken down by a couple of berries. Like it's just such a good line and she delivers it so well. And I think the two of them, the like tete-a-tetes they have both when they're in the same space, but also like when they're both observing each other from afar is really, really good. But I more what I was speaking to, which I think you didn't quite get (laughs) Get, get (laughs) um, is the first film is so focused on what you will do to survive individually. Mm. And like, I even feel like Katniss for a lot of the films, she's not that concerned about the collective taking down the capital. She's just concerned about herself surviving and taking care of her family. Yeah. And that's what the hunger games create is this every man for themselves. And this is going to be something that's explored in the prequel is this question is constantly asked of the young snow. What are the hunger games for? And I think the first films show really well, or the first film shows very well, that the Hunger Games create this every person for themselves mm-hmm. mentality. And even though Katniss and Peta survive in the end, it's because Peta has become a part of Katniss's family. Yeah. And unless you're part of Katniss's family, she's not all that concerned about you. But what's happening around her and because of her and because of her willingness to stand up for the people that matter to her is this rallying of like we can all stand up for each other that Katniss actually isn't that much a part of. Yeah. And we see the cost of being a part of a collective group. We see it with Cinna. Yeah. He, you know, creates these outfits that stoke the fires mm-hmm. and then he's essentially killed in front of her. Yeah. Right. Um, and we just keep seeing pockets of this. We see it, like you mentioned, um, with the when they're in district 11 and and Katniss gives that very beautiful speech about like I see Rue in the flowers I see Rue in this I'm so sorry I couldn't save her and then this like old man gives the three finger salute and is executed there on the spot right Mm -hmm. and so we we are seeing as we would in real life when you stand up against the state and you risk your individual self for the collective cause what the cost of that is. And Katniss Mm -hmm. hasn't really cared about that. Mm -hmm. And the first film doesn't care about that. The first film is all about just Katniss surviving. And now she's a conduit for a rebellion. Yeah. And I think that it's sickening. Like it, 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 when you, you know, you really think about it and you think about the history of this and contemporary examples of this, of like the cost of, speaking out against a system in the hope that if you do it, other people will too, because we need lots of people to take on a system. Mm -hmm. But that requires a lot of individual sacrifice and individual risk to get to a point of collectivity. Yeah. And we see more and more people taking that on as the series goes on. But yeah, this is very much the start of it. Another thing that I think that this film wants to speak to and speaks to it really well is the idea of trauma. Yeah. And I think it, so beautifully and complexly reframes characters from the first film where 
what we might have seen as Hamish being like, I think he's a great example of him just being like disinterested, disengaged and alcoholic. We're like, oh, he has trauma from being in the games. He has trauma from being the sole District 12 mentor who has watched two people that he comes to know and care about die every single year. That's why he is the way he is, not just because he's a ship guy. And there's clearly like, there's no mental health support whatsoever. Like Katniss and PETA are being paraded around and it's supposed to be like, like Snow knows it's fucked up. But like people like Effie and the the common person from um, the Capitol are like, oh, this is like, this is amazing. This is, they're doing like their little tour. This is so fun. I get to see Katniss in like cool outfits and shit. But like, no, it's just like rubbing their nose in the trauma of going to the places of all the people in theory that were killed or they killed. Well, and I think this is part of what the Capitol has devised to ensure that they keep even the victors in line. Right. And I believe it's in this film where Hamish says to Katniss, you never get off this train. Yeah. And that is a, of course, metaphor for the trauma of the games. Mm-hmm. Like they will keep you in this trauma. You will never escape it. You will think that you have, and then they will pull you back in. Um, and I think that, again, is it doing this in the most intensely intellectual, thoughtful way when we look at a film like Causeway that also looks at trauma and addiction? Um, and also has Jennifer Lawrence. Those are two very different films. But if this is an entry point for a young person or like a person who just hasn't thought about these things at any stage in their life, like this is the kind of movie my mom would watch mm-hmm. and can be the first glimpse of that that you start to then reflect on in yourself or a like conduit for conversation between people, then these films fucking rock. That yeah. They can get people thinking about the insidious nature of trauma and that you don't just get over things that happen and that there's like literal neurochemical things happening when you've experienced trauma that a person can't just snap their fingers and not care about anymore. Well, yeah. And like, I feel, I can't remember if it's this film or if it is a later Mockingjay film, but there's a moment where Jennifer Lawrence walks into Jennifer Lawrence, Katniss walks in to talk with Haymitch and like she grabs a drink that he's been drinking and like she takes a swig of it. And I think it's just something that small is a moment of understanding from Katniss of just like, it's exactly like you said, being the only mentor for District 12. Hamish has literally, since he was a teenager, watched two people die every year until so Katniss. So why get and, close to them? Right? Yeah, exactly. And just like, I'm going to drown all of this in a substance. And I think that... Um Something that this film, why I love this film so much, and I think the book is so great too, is the first film sets up the world and the rules and all of this so well. And what this film shows you is what happens when people who've been playing by the rules realize the game is rigged and nothing will ever keep them safe. Mm -hmm. Because I think Katniss in the first film kind of feels like, okay, well now I've won and now I'm good. Now it's done. Um, But when they devise the quarter quell Mm -hmm. and all of these victors. I think it's Joanna Mason says like, you told us we, if we won, if we killed people that we'd never have to go back in there. Mm -hmm. And so there's this realization that like you can do everything the capital wants you to do and they can still turn, they can still turn on a dime and make new rules. So what benefit is there to continue to play by the rules, which is what pushes people from this individual mindset into this collective mindset. And we see these people working together 
um, you know, we get this alliance of like Finnick and Joanna and Beatty um, and Peta. And this is where the films do a really good job. This film does a really good job of like, because we're following Katniss in this, in this more first person way, we don't know that there's this plan between all of these people to save her. And this starts exploring. I do think the books do this better than the films do, but what happens when you become the figurehead for something that you didn't sign up to be the figurehead for? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Katniss believes that Peta is a better person than her and deserves to live over her. Mm-hmm. And she's not privy to like the rest of the plan. Um, there's a lot of really beautiful stuff with the two of them in this. Yeah. I just, before we move to that, I just want to say all the, th- everything you said about the rules and the capital not playing by the rules, Jigsaw would not abide. Like he would be like, there are rules. We can't create yeah. a quarter quell out of nowhere. That's right. There are rules. <laughs> <laughs> they are very clear. Yeah, I agree. There are, there are some very sweet moments between Peta and Katniss and them coming together because we didn't really get to see much of that in the first film. Like they were kind of separate and they 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 weren't really brought together. But throughout the film, the I think it, it's revisited in like I think like kind of a flashback dream sequence kind of moment later, like where Katniss has PTSD and she's waking up screaming in the middle of the, middle of the night. And then Peter comes running in because he recognizes that because he's also suffering from the same thing. And she's just like, can you stay with me? And I think as a teenager, you'd be like, ooh, sharing a bed. But like now I'm just like, these are two deeply affected people going through some of the worst shit a person can go through. And they're there simply to comfort each other. Well, this is, you know, it's interesting because I feel like and I don't actually know um, because it was so long ago that I read the books, but I feel like the books play with that love triangle between Gail and Peta more than the films do. I feel like the films, you know, it's going to be Peta from the get go. Yeah. Um, and I remember a lot of people like not being happy about that with the books and even myself being like, no, it's got to be Gail. Cause I feel like Peta is the Jacob. Peta is the, I don't know who, I don't, I can't think of other love triangles, but uh, Suzanne Collins was like older when she wrote the books. Um, the first book came out in, 2008 she was 46 when the first book came out Mm -hmm. and i feel like there's a lot of maturity to the way that she explores what love is Mm -hmm. and what bonds to people and i think that now as an older getting older person who has been in a relationship for a long time I'm not just dazzled by like pretty boy Gail, who is very handsome, mm-hmm. but there's like a kindness to Peta and a solidity to him mm-hmm. and an understanding and an empathy um, where I, I think that Suzanne Collins age when she wrote these books actually created much more like strong models of good relationship then I was ready to accept at the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. I agree with that. Like it doesn't feel as schmaltzy waltzy as a twilight. But for me, the the love triangle stuff, the will they, won't they, the like get Gail turning into a baby about like, oh, you like PETA? Blah, blah, blah. Like it it doesn't. I I feel like that's the weak point for me in these movies. Like, but I don't feel like it's really there. Like, I feel like 
any moment where either of the boys put that on Katniss, she says, like, I'm not even thinking about that. And I, I think am that, literally fighting for my life. Yeah. And I, I think that that's important to, like, have the woman in this situation be like, fucking, I don't I don't give a shit about this right now. And I, and I don't think that I don't think that PETA forces that on her. No. Like having a relationship or anything. I think that they're just in the shit together and they care about each other. He is grouchy when he feels like he's been lied to and that she like faked love for him, which is fair. I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too pee pee poo poo about it, but like, I just feel like with where things net out by the end of this, this first original series, I just think it would have been so much more powerful if it wasn't like, them ending up together and like having babies and having this like life together. Like I, I would have loved if they were just like really tight friends that, lo- that loved each other. Yeah, and cared I think about each being other. too pee pee poo poo about it. I mean, yeah, maybe you want I Katniss am. to just be alone for the rest of her life. No, but I don't know. Just, and you know what? Maybe, maybe it's mostly just Gail. Like anytime the, the Gail start getting pee pee poo poo about like PETA and Katniss and stuff. Like he, he was the biggest baby about the whole thing. Yes, which is why, like I'm saying, even though a lot of people would have wanted her to end up with Gail because Gail is kind of the Edward, right, of the series. Um, in terms of like, he's like kind of more bad boy. and Yeah. And he's like. He's so obviously incredibly handsome. And he's been there, like they've been tight for yes, longer. Yes, for so long. I, I actually think that the way that the relationship between Peta and Katniss is explored is done really maturely and has a good model of how to care for someone in relationship and and sometimes the choices we make about who to be in a relationship with and why and who to be committed to and why and the by the i mean i don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves but like you already alluded to it by the end of the series this idea of like being with someone is a choice and a commitment and something that you work towards Mm -hmm. that is a very mature look at love and at long-term commitment in a relationship that I feel is not very present in a lot of YA stuff. Yeah. So I do think you're being pee pee poo poo. No, I mean, right. I know we don't want to have kids. So sometimes when a film ends with that, we're like, Ugh, but I think that the film sets up so well when Katniss says at the beginning of film one, I never want to have kids cause I don't want them to get put into the hunger games. Like this is, this is about yeah the conditions of a world. And I even think about that in the contemporary moment. Friends I, I know who are, who we have who would say well in a different world i'd want to have kids but i'm not bringing kids into a climate apocalypse you know like that's actually a very prescient and contemporary consideration of what are the conditions that allow people to feel safe and comfortable and ready to have children and bring them into the world and raise them yeah there's something beautifully hopeful about just the act of her and Peta, especially like her and Peta. yes uh choosing choosing to to bring children children into and and it's clearly a choice, right? So we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but. But you know what? You've, you've helped me see the light a little bit. And I think that, I think that while watching these, I was just so tied up in the like, oh, man, like another YA story that needed to like, like throw in like this romance angle when like, I don't think it needed it. And like, you know me, I'm schmoopy poopy. Like I, I love, I, I've gravitated towards romance shit more than you have in, in the past and stuff. But I think I let that kind of cloud the importance of how it's handled and how and, and where it nets out. 
And young girls deserve a model of how to think about relationship, which is part of what YA is about, is like a space to explore these very real things happening in your own life. And I feel like a YA book that actually has a young woman who can say now is not the time for me to be thinking about this, but then at other times be like, yes, I do want to think about this and have her making conscious choices is, mm-hmm. is not something to sneer at. Yeah. I think young women deserve that. Absolutely. And I apologize for sneering. I walk back my pee pee poo ness You've helped me rethink it. And I, I think it is important and I think that it is handled really, really well. And I like that it shows the complexity of it. Cause I, I don't think it's like this Edward Jacob thing of like, they're just like, Oh, I like Bella. Oh, I like Bella. And it's just like this no. jostling for that. Like I, I never get that from PETA. No. And there's actually a really, I think one of the most beautiful moments in this film. And once again, I'm going to say once we get into the games, they kind of lose me a bit where I'm like, at first I'm really excited. And then I'm like, they're just running around a forest. Um, it's so funny. I, I just, I love all the game <laughs> shit. So you're more of an action film person than I am. And, and I do feel yeah. like it kind of does that Harry Potter thing of like, it feels like a retread on the first, like we're just kind of, which is funny. Cause a lot of people say in, you know, Mockingjay part one that they missed the hunger games. And I'm like, Oh no, I was ready to not have a hunger games. Hmm. Um, like I don't need to see the same thing over and over again, but there's a really beautiful moment where PETA and, Katniss now in the quarter quell being forced to to play the Hunger Games again. Um, Peta gives her this necklace that Effie had made. Effie had these little gold trinkets mm. made for all of them to show that they're a team. And in it is a, he says, a picture of your family. Mm. And in it is her mom, her sister, and Gail. Yeah. And so this really beautiful acknowledgement from Peta that like, Gail is important to you. I understand he's important to you. I understand that he's family. And there's quite a few moments. Yes, Gail can be kind of pee-pee poo-poo with Katniss, but I feel like he has some really nice moments with Peta. Yeah. And a clear closeness with Katniss's biological family. Yeah. Um Yeah. No, I I agree. Peta Peta's a sweetie cutie. Peta is a sweetie cutie. And you know, so I guess you did love the games. Yeah. Um, one more thing I want to touch on that I really love, like that just again hammered home that I feel like, you know, Francis Lawrence coming in as director does an excellent job for the rest of the series. And it's cleaner for sure, crisper for sure. It is. Um, but it doesn't lose the tone at all. And I think that this film has, I'll say again, just some of my favorite dialogue in the whole series. I mean, that that, that sequence between... Katniss and Snow is top tier, but I also fucking love the se- the sequence between Katniss and Heavensby, Philip Seymour Hoffman, when they're dancing together. And mm. and Philip Seymour Hoffman, I know I mentioned this to you, but like when he plays a a potential bad guy, like in Mission Impossible Three, and as it's kind of set up in this, he can be very creepy and very imposing. And make you feel like you don't have control over anything. And he he's so good at it that you kind of for his character for the rest of the film, even though at the end of this film, it's revealed that he's actually on the side of the rebellion. It's a good reveal because he doesn't seem like he is, but he has to seem like he doesn't seem like he is or Snow's going to sniff him out. Yeah. Right. And he 
to realize that he actually had snow under his thumb the whole time. Yeah. Is impressive. So good. Yeah. And I, I think that another beautiful thing in this film that is upped even further from the first one are the people rallying around Katniss that make my heart swell. Like I feel like the relationship between her and Hamish is delved into a little bit more here and you feel a little bit more of their, their connection. Um, I think a really powerful moment is this is, there's a clear turning point I think for Effie Mm -hmm. in this, in, in having to send Katniss off to another hunger games like the moment she has to reach into the bowl and it's only Katniss's name in for the women. I think that her moments with Cinna again are very beautiful. Well, this is going back to what I said, which is people who've been playing by the rules realize the rules are rigged and Effie's a part of that, right? Where she realizes like the game she signed up for in exchange for being safe in the capital is that, you know, if she's the capital mentor for these people and they die, whatever, they're dead. Forget about them. But if they win, you get to know them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And that's been taken away from her, right? And so you get all of these people who are starting to realize that playing by the rules won't get them anywhere. Um, it's mm-hmm. a temporary safety at best because you will never get off this train, as Hamage says, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and another really like beautiful moment sad beautiful moment that this film has of like showing when an individual is willing to to take a risk for the collective is when Megs um who Finnick the old older woman who volunteers for Annie um Mm -hmm. in Finnick's district I can't remember what district it is um when she walks into the fog so that PETA can live yeah um because she you know she's willing to take that sacrifice for this this greater good and um you know, Finnick comes across as such a, a lot of character flip flopping. Yeah, this like movie. he's he's so frustrating, and yet also his like relationship with Megs shows this like beauty. There was, I was really invested when these films were coming out in like the casting and like the fan casting and the dream casting, <laughs> and people really wanted Jesse Williams as Finnick, um, because he's mm. kind of uh, Finnick is described kind of ambiguously in the books where like the way his skin is described could just be like a really tan white guy mm-hmm. or could be a person of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and people really wanted Jesse Williams. And then they were <laughs> like, ah, after all that shit with Rue and now we don't get Jesse Williams that like mm-hmm. that sucks. But I think Jesse Williams would have been good, but he's perhaps too charming. Mm-hmm. I don't know that he could have played like doinky as well. I think he could though. Oh yeah. Like, Jackson gets pretty doinky in Grey's Anatomy, he does. but he is a pretty boy. Yeah, no, 100%. I think he would have crushed it, absolutely. Finnick is supposed to have green eyes, so I think that's why people were like, Jesse Williams would be. like He's supposed to have like mm. beautiful sea green eyes. Um, yeah, I really I really like the character Finnick. Um, yes, he's even more developed in, in the books. Yeah, that that's great to hear. Unsurprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think he's great. And like again, like what the fuck with this cast? Like Jenna Malone, I think, is amazing and i forgot that jeffrey wright was in this i fucking <laughs> love jeffrey wright i know you do he plays such a little freak in this he's just <laughs> like ah, mm, my little my, my my electricity <laughs> he always is though he, he he plays a little freak really well like i really like i liked him as bernard in westworld and i i even like him as um isaac the voice of isaac in last of us part two and i love that he showed up here 
I thought I thought he was I thought he was great, and I love that he's also in just the rest of the series. Yeah, more of a, a secondary role in, in or like tertiary role in future films, but yeah, he's great in this, and I think all again all of that secondary casting is done really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to mention one thing before we close on this, which is that the motif that I really like, and they're definitely hitting you over the head with this, is the idea of fire. Yes. The book being called Catching Fire and the film being called Catching Fire. The um, girl on fire. And But Snow actually says this, right? He says like, I can't remember if he says it in the first film or the second film. I think it might be when he's talking to Seneca in the first film that like the only thing stronger than fear is hope. Mm-hmm. A little hope is good, but you don't want it to catch fire. Yeah. And I, I, I love that motif in like any media. The idea of like once something starts on fire it can spread so rapidly. Mm -hmm. Um, It's in a lot of literature, this idea of, and that can be used in a destructive kind of metaphor Mm -hmm. or it can be used in this way. I mean, there is destruction in rebellion, but as a, like they're mixing that motif with the idea of the Phoenix. Yeah. And they're using like the Mockingjay to kind of show that. I think that moment with her wedding dress turning into the Mockingjay, which like, or like the fire, which then becomes the Mockingjay, such beautiful Phoenix um, imagery with the idea of like, yes, we might, we will destroy something through this fire, but we will birth something new out of it. I'm a sucker for it. I really like it. No, I'm with you. Like that stuff really stuck with me throughout the series. Like I like this idea, this sort of dichotomy of hope can be used as an agent of fear but it can also be an agent of change mm-hmm. and revolution and rebellion. And I, I think that's super powerful. Um, couple just kind of stray thoughts uh, closing this out. Uh, I, what I've learned from watching this whole series, but specifically this film, what I've learned about myself is I think I would totally be a PETA in this whole thing. Oh, Cause yeah. PETA is always fucking getting hurt. Yeah. <laughs> I would always be down for the count. I think <laughs> if I were in the hunger games, um, and I think that one of the creepiest devices in this film, and it shows up in the most recent film, I think more effectively in the most recent film is what are they called? The fucking jabber jays. Yes. And them being able to like mimic human voices. Yeah. Jabber jays in the wild will mimic the last thing they heard. And that is the way it's used. Both times it pops up is horrifying. Yeah. I feel like Suzanne Collins does a really good job building a world that has these kind of elements like the Mockingjay, like the Jabberjay, like the Tracker Jacket, like the Hunger Games and the Capitol and all of this stuff without getting too outside of our own world with it. Like she balances it really nicely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I think... The closest that we got to some nice boy on boy action was Finnick giving mouth to mouth to Peta. <laughs> yeah. And then and then Peta kissing Katniss. So basically Finnick and Katniss are, kissed, are kissing. Yeah. Uh definitely. I definitely think that this film I remember seeing it in the theater and when it ended, just being like, Oh, I want to watch the next one right away, because it's a very abrupt ending. Mm-hmm. Um made me want to just keep watching. And I think that that's highly effective. Yeah. I think this is a solid sequel and I feel like this rips even harder than the first film. I'm with you. This is my favorite in the, in the series. Uh, I love it so much. How does catching fire make you feel? Uh, jacked up on flipping birds and sticking it to the man. How does it make you feel? 
It makes me feel on board for the shift to collectivity, trauma, and rebellion. These kind of headier things that are set up in the first film, but then explored more complexly in this one. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okay, moving on to the next film, The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. This is from 2014. And once again, Francis Lawrence is returning to direct, as director. Peter Craig and Danny Strong uh, wrote the screenplay. And then in terms of new faces that are showing up in this one, we have freaking Julianne Moore as President Alma Coyne. And again, I did not remember he was in these films, but Mahershala Ali as Boggs. Natalie Dormer as Cressida. And Sarita Chowdhury as Ajira. Agiria? Agiria. Synopsis. Katniss Everdeen is in District 13 after she shatters the games forever. Under the leadership of President Coyne and the advice of her trusted friends, Katniss spreads her wings as she fights to save PETA and a nation moved by her courage. What do you think? This one is bleak as fuck. Yeah, this is the Deathly Hollows Part 1 of the Hunger Games series. Yes, and this was made all the more bleak by a lot of the imagery feeling like it could come straight out of the news of what's happening in Gaza right now. Yeah. And, you know, I, like I, I said earlier, I think that if that can be a, you know, if you're rewatching this with friends or with parents or with somebody who's not thinking about those things and, and they're feeling sickened by what they're seeing, particularly in the scenes with district eight in this, that's a great starting point to say, well, if you feel that way about what's happening here, you know, this is happening in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And here's how you can get involved. Here's here's a petition you can sign. Here's some stuff you can read to become better informed. And it was, I mean, I certainly felt that in earlier films where it's like, ooh, it's, you know, seeing like a state control and the death of children and, you know, the, particularly like essentially these, the districts are like open air prisons you can feel that connection to this contemporary moment. And of course this contemporary moment has been going on for decades, but mm-hmm. this felt particularly like, oh, I'm having a hard time separating and perhaps I should have a hard time separating and shouldn't try to separate what's going on in the world and what's being depicted in this film. Mm-hmm. So that just intensified the bleakness. Yeah. 
There, that, and that was a feeling across the whole series. Yeah. Watching it at this particular point in time that made it very tough, but also very real and upsetting. And I think that made the, made these films bleaker than they already are. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think the films are at all specifically intended to make you consider contemporary genocides and wars, but it's there and thinking about that and having it be something that pushes you into conversation and and thinking and listening and talking, I think is important, Mm -hmm. but it definitely was kind of tough to watch Yeah, and be like, Oh, I am watching this incredibly escapist blockbuster film. That's also reflecting back these awful things happening in our world. Oh, absolutely. Like it's, Felt cognitive dissonancy. It did. Like, there is some very upsetting, very powerful imagery. Like, Katniss going back to District 12 and seeing just, like, a whole street full of charred skeletons of the people that could not escape is so affecting and powerful and upsetting. And then the 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 capital's just blatant willingness to kill people from these districts and destroy hospitals and destroy resources and prohibit resources it's just like jesus christ yeah and then knowing that that's happening right now yeah and that this isn't so dystopian yeah but in the in the world of the film i feel like this is the first film where we're really seeing snow flipping the idea of hope on its head and it's no longer about giving hope but destroying it yeah and and then there becomes this really interesting And I remember being really, really compelled by this when I read the books. And I think it's definitely there in the films, but maybe not as much. This look at how the rebellion is also using Katniss in ways that she is not asking for or necessarily agreeing to. Mm -hmm. And in ways that aren't necessarily genuine. Right? Yeah. It's about like, so there's a, a line that Plutarch says in Catching Fire, which is repeated over these next few again, Catching Fire and the two Mockingjay films where he says it's all about moves and counter moves. Mm -hmm. And you really see Coyne played by Julianne Moore and Snow engaging in these moves and counter moves where Katniss is a piece on the chessboard. Yeah. And it shows you kind of the insidious nature of either side. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, I think it balances that really well with the people who just genuinely want a new world. But it also asks like, so what happens when the person who's leading this rebellion is just going to turn it into a different kind of world that you don't like? Yeah. Well, it it makes, especially watching it now, all of the stuff of her shooting, them wanting to capture these like propaganda videos and wanting to put Katniss into these war zones to elicit a reaction from her to make the videos more genuine. I found it also hits different watching it now when we're so much more engrossed in influencer culture Mm. now of people taking to social media, being more performative or, you know, there is, there, there are genuine people 
who are influencers, but they're also disingenuous people who are influencers. Oh, this happens. Whenever you show me the like daily dose of internet videos, I go, that wasn't real. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that little girl playing just happened to be able to play violin really well with that piano player. No, I'm assuming that that was pre-planned ahead of time. <laughs> I just, I just can't like most of it. I'm like, Oh, like, or that person who just got angry. That was like an act. Yeah. Um, and it makes me mad. <laughs> If you, if you present it, like if you say it's an act, I'm cool with it. But if you present it as genuine, I'm not so cool with it. Unless it's like Ghost Watch, then I'm okay with yeah. it. Um, yeah, it's really it's it's really interesting looking at like kind of how Katniss is used by both sides and how she feels about it. And like she never wanted to be a symbol. Like she just wanted to protect her sister. Yes. And now she's being thrust into performing, but being genuine and... That's she just wants to like protect the people that she cares about. Well, really, all she wants in this film is to get PETA back, right? Like she's so angry and the catching fire ends with her anger at Hamish, where she says, you promised me, you promised me you would take him out and not me. And she comes to realize that like she's only valuable as a figurehead. Mm -hmm. Like they don't actually care about her. They care about her value to the rebellion. Mm -hmm. And PETA wasn't valuable enough to the rebellion. And so therefore his life doesn't matter. And Katniss starts to, you know, Think about how different is that from what the capital does. Yeah. Um, in in I think a really thoughtful way. I do find it interesting that a lot of folks complain about how this film is boring because there's no Hunger Games, because it makes me be like in a funny games kind of way. Is that not kind of a problem if you want to watch the Hunger Games? Well, yeah, it's if like what is appealing to you about these films are kids killing kids. Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, and not necessarily funny, haha, but that I feel like Katniss only fires maybe like one or two arrows in this movie. I do like when she fires arrows though. Really it, makes me want to like go take archery. Lessons. Yeah, it's, it's pretty sick. Um, uh, and I fully support you taking up archery. Um, <laughs> I think it's an expensive hobby, <laughs> but there's a whole sequence in the next film that you said might not have been in the books where it's just like this action sequence that takes place in the sewers and she's firing. No, nah, it did take place in the books. Okay. I but like there's like uh, clearly like a whole set piece in there where it's just action driven and she's unloading arrows on these creatures or whatever. But yeah, this, this, this film has no hunger games. Katniss barely fires any arrows. Like it is, it is the deathly hollows. It's just, it, it's, it's focusing on, the people dealing with the current situation and there's a lot of dialogue and there's a lot of walking and talking and on the ground dealing with the repercussions of what's happening. I don't know. I, I can, I can see why people would say that, but I mean, for me it works. And I think that that is such a good critique of like, isn't that fucked up that to, in order for these movies to be good, you need that, the hunger. We games. need to have we need the hunger that games. spectacle. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I like that the film pushes elsewhere. Um, and I think it shows that, like, real revolution is not always glamorous mm -hmm. um, and it's not always riveting. It's strategic and it's, you know, sometimes not as ethical as we'd want it to be. And I, I think that it explores that in really interesting ways. And again, like I said, I think that these books are a really great starting point for some of these bigger ideas. Um, especially for a young person reading them and being compelled by it. Mm -hmm. This is the whiniest Gale is. <laughs> it's because Pete is out of commish. And, and he's like, just like, now's my chance. Yeah. And he's like, you'll never, 
you'll never love me if Peter's sick because you like the sick ones. <laughs> he essentially says that. Yeah. Yeah. I. <laughs> this is the lowest Peter, uh, Gale is. Well, what he's failing to realize and like the very kind Peter who was like, I accept that Gale is a part of your family and I respect that and honor that. What he's failing to see is that it's not that Katniss wants to take care of Peta; it's that Peta and Katniss have taken care of each other. Shared trauma, baby. Yeah, they're trauma bonded, but but also that like she knows if the situations were reversed that he would be trying to save her. That it's not just about her like taking on a project; it's um, and it's about like her real understanding of what the capital can do to you and her fear of that for him, right? And Gail can only really understand that in the abstract. I mean, obviously his whole district was destroyed, but he doesn't know what it's like to be in the capital and to be manipulated in that way. And oh my goodness, the like increasingly gaunt videos of PETA are very upsetting. So upsetting. And like, it's so fucked up to, to see like Stanley Tucci's character, Caesar be like complicit in it. Like he's the one hosting these interviews yeah, he never joins the rebellion. <laughs> no. And I think that's important to have characters that like we find entertaining and we like in earlier films continue to be complicit and continue to uphold the oppression because they benefit from it, right? And to yeah. not be willing to sacrifice the way that Effie and Cinna and you know later characters do. Yeah. And even like the character of Cressida, like she is capital. Yeah. Like, and she's joined the rebellion from the capital. Uh, one of my favorite parts of this film is when Prim almost dies to bring her cat down. Mood. I would also go back for the cat. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's bleak. And, like, I feel like Julianne Moore, her character of President Coyne, brings a lot of... She like Julianne Moore's a heavy hitter, so she brings like a lot of weight to the film. I fucking love Mahershala Ali, and I feel like his character of Boggs, even though he's like the military guy, I I see, as especially in the next film, like his simpatico with yeah, Katniss. They have kind of a similar relationship to what she has with Cinna, except it's kind of there's a different um, there's a real gentleness with her relationship with Cinna. And I feel like there's a more like just we get each other relationship with Boggs. But this kind of like quiet mentor from afar yeah. is, is similar. It's kind of like this. Um, they're each kind of giving her the. They're giving her different ways to fight, essentially. Sin is, is a little bit more quiet and but like still sticking it to the man. Whereas. um Boggs is a little bit more like combat. Yeah, he's her man on the ground, right? He helps her out. And, and he has her back when like Coin is trying to use her in particular ways. And yeah, I do think um, Julianne Moore and Philip Seymour Hoffman in scenes together, really good. Yeah. Like you've got two incredible actors playing in this YA, YA series and, and doing their absolute best. And, you yeah. know, it's sad to see the dedication to Philip Seymour Hoffman at the end of this film because it was, yeah. I think, the the last film that came out after he passed, although he is in the next film. Yeah. Yeah, I th I think that this is a real powerful penultimate in the series. It's always so tricky when you have, like, a two-part in, in a series 
Do you wish that they had been one film? I think it would have been too much. And I think this allows them to flesh it out. And I think that this also fed into my previous pee pee poo poo of like, it's hard to not feel like it's kind of cash grabby when every YA series before and after this was following a similar formula. It's like, we're going to break the last one into two movies, but I think it needed to happen. Like, I think that this story in part one is so important and adds so much heft to the overall series, but also to what happens in part two. So here's an argument I'm going to make. I kind of wish the whole thing had been a show. Yeah, we were talking about this after everything. Like, would we watch a Hunger Games show? And like, absolutely. But I feel like the first one worked really well as a film and even the second one to a degree. But there's so much potential for world building and character development. And if you did a show, you could have like, you could have an episode that's like just about Plutarch. Yeah. And you could have an episode that like spends more time in the districts or like we get Rue's backstory or something like that. Right. And I actually think the whole thing as a series would have been really incredible. But I don't want it as a series now. I want it as a series with this, these original actors. So I'm like, yeah. I don't want them to go and make it into a mini series now. Mm-hmm. I just kind of wish that it had been a show, like an HBO show. I feel like that wasn't as on people's radar at this time. The idea that like, oh, Last of Us doesn't have to be a movie. It can be a show. Yeah. Like you can take these properties and do really well with them on TV and yeah. on like prestige TV. Do you know, man, I, I have a couple thoughts racing through my head as you were talking here. One is I think it'd be sick if they made like an anthology show where like each yeah. season. I really wish that this prequel had been a show, yeah. not a movie. Like, and I feel like you could do that. You could time jump to the history of the Hunger Games throughout time. Like you could do one like the new film at year 10, you could do one for the 75th quarter. Well, you could do one for the 50th. Like you could time jump and like follow different characters. Our idea is going to get stolen the way that our John Wick, the continental show. Copyright bad dad, rad dad. I Um, think one of the reasons they haven't done this is because Suzanne Collins is so involved in the films in a way that I, it seems like everybody quite respects her vision. mm -hmm. And she wrote a book that was, called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes that was turned into a movie. You know who I think would be awesome? There's a few ideas that would be awesome. I feel like Damon Lindelof would make a <laughs> I don't awesome think he, version of this. I don't think he would do it, but he would do a good job. Um, I'd even like to see Jordan Peele. Uh, but now we're, we're changing the tone. Yeah, I can even see like, I don't know. This is just me being weird, but like something in the, in the, sort of the vibe of the first film would lend itself really well to like Kelly Reichardt. <laughs> yeah, you're really, you're really totally shifting things. I know. Anyway, fun to dream. Um, yeah, the, the, I, I think that they made the right choice splitting this into two parts. And I, I think that this sets up the last film of this original series really well. How does it make you feel? It makes me feel a bleak hope. How does it make you feel? Ready to flick President Snow so, so hard. Okay, last film of the original series, Mahinjay Part 2, came out in 2015, was directed by Francis Lawrence again and written by Peter Craig and Danny Strong. I don't have any new additions to the cast. There aren't any, really. Yeah. 
Um, synopsis, Katniss and a team of rebels from District 13 prepare for the final battle that will decide the fate of Panem. What do you think of the Mockingjay Part 2? This is the end of the whole shebang here. Uh, my, like, thought as soon as the credits started rolling on on this is that this one is really good, but I think that it is my least favorite from these first three stories. I agree. There's things about it I really like. Yeah. And I think if you take it in tandem with part one, like if you think of them as one film, it's quite good. Yeah. But you know me, I'm not, I'm not an action guy and part one is all set up and part two is mostly action. And so get a little bored. I get a little bored. I don't know that everybody would. Um, there are some good action sequences, like the the part with the oil is pretty upsetting. Yeah. Um, we didn't talk about in the last one how they get Peta back and then he wants to kill Katniss. Yeah, like that, like that's heartbreaking. And having her like that kind of just happens at the very end of Mockingjay Part One, mm-hmm. and then having her actually trying to deal with that. Um, mm-hmm. That is, I actually think, the part of this film that I find the most compelling. And one of the things that I'm a little disappointed in is I, I think. And I don't remember the books well enough to know if it's there, but I would have liked to see more of how the citizens of the capital are reacting to this. Yeah. Um, the one scene we have with the character of Tigress, who becomes much more interesting once you watch and read the prequel, um, I think is really compelling. This idea of like who in the capital would help like harbor them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could use more of that of like, yeah. Are there rebels in the capital and are who is not rebelling and who is afraid and who is angry and beyond just snow, like just the regular citizens of the capital? Yeah. And like those having more of those run ins, like Katniss was so revered by the capital and was the capital's mocking Jay as well from a, in a different lens than how the district saw her as a mocking Jay. But I agree just a little bit more of that. And because we really kind of only get the perspective of Effie as kind of the conduit for how the capital feels, but like Effie is her own person. And And she's in district 13. Yeah. So we don't, the thing I feel about this film is when it is good, it is so, so good. Yes. But of all of the films, this is the one that I felt was failing to do justice to the depth of the book. Yeah. The other ones I think managed to do a pretty good job of it. Whereas this one, it feels like a rush to the end and it's long already. So like, they're not going to make it any longer, but I feel like it's so it's like so much focused on climax and resolution that like, we don't have that nice balance. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it because yeah, I was just trying to kind of confront myself of why I feel this way about this film. And I think another one of the reasons is I, I think that I felt the plot armor of our characters the most in this film. like Which I don't really remember feeling in the books because, I mean, Finnick dies. Yeah. Prim dies. Yeah. And one of the things that we're like meant to understand is that like in Catching Fire, it's everybody's job to keep Katniss alive. Mm-hmm. Until it's not, until like Coin doesn't care anymore. But so one of the reasons that she's surviving is that people are actively trying to save her and and sacrificing themselves to save her. Mm-hmm. Um, Which she doesn't want. No. And that, again, is just the complexity and the beauty of the character of Katniss. Yes. Yeah. 
I think I had in my notes that like the romance aspect just doesn't work and kills the momentum for me. But I think that's mostly just like Gail needs to chill. But that's one of the most fascinating parts. So I feel like sometimes I have this really terrible habit of being like, oh, if it was fleshed out more in the books, I'm just going to assume that you didn't understand it in the movies. Not you, but like a person who just anyone who hasn't read the books. So one of the most chilling parts of this film is really rushing right to the end but so much of this is just action so much of it's just like they're in district 13 trying to you know it's katniss's plan to kill president snow so they get her ultimate revenge well i think you put it perfectly that it is a rush to the end like this is all about getting to the climax and the climax is at the end of the film yeah so a lot of it is like fighting we lose people along the way i feel like i felt the death of finnick more in the books than i do in the movie Hmm. um I feel like I felt the death of Prim more in the books than I did in the movie. Yeah. Like it's, it, I remember being devastated when I read that that's in a, the book. That's a, yeah. I mean, I haven't read the book, but yeah, I didn't, it's, it feels like such a blip here, but like it is the whole impetus for Prim is the whole impetus for Katniss being here at all. If I remember correctly, there's more time spent in the book on like Katniss because she's been gone. You know, she, she still sees Prim as this little girl and Prim has to be like, I, I've been growing and changing and coming into my own while you've been away and you have to accept that I'm I'm making decisions. And like Prim made a choice to come and help as a medic. Like she made that choice just Mm -hmm. like Katniss made the choice for, to volunteer for her in the hunger games. And Katniss kind of having to come to terms with that, that like Prim is allowed to make her own decisions. Mm -hmm. And that's, there's a lot more interiority of that mm. and like Katniss struggling with that in the book. Um, but what I was going to say is one thing that I do think is handled really well. And I'm just curious as someone who hasn't read the books, it's one of my favorite part of the books. Did it come across as well in the film is that it's a Gail's idea to drop, to have the rebellion drop the bombs and make it seem like it was the capital. Or at least Coin gets that idea from him because when they're talking about what they need to do to get the armory from District 2, he suggests that they bomb the shit out of it and just kill everyone. Mm-hmm. And Katniss is like, we can't do that. Like, we can't kill everyone. There are civilians in there. And Gail doesn't care. He's like, sometimes people have to die. And we get this, like, dichotomy between the two of them where Katniss, having been in the Hunger Games, knows that sometimes you're compelled or forced or, you know, just your survival instinct causes you to do things that, aren't who you truly are and she's not going to sacrifice people just because they're in district two and gail's like no anyone who supports the capital deserves to die i don't care if they're a child i don't care who they are mm-hmm. um and when we find out at the end that it wasn't the capital that dropped the bombs on all of these children on prim mm-hmm. on people that were injured it was the rebellion posing as the capital so that the capital would finally turn on itself like that is chilling yeah and that Gail doesn't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that. That mm-hmm. like that's moves and counter moves. Yeah. Um, and it's like a necessary sacrifice for the rebellion. Yeah. And so I think it actually becomes a lot less will they, won't they, and a lot more I don't support who Gail is and I do support who Peta is from Katniss. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's that's done well in that moment when like Snow and her kind of tete a tete again and he's like I didn't drop those bombs. I wouldn't have done that, mm-hmm. but it was brilliant of them. Yeah. Where he's like, checkmate, they got me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. 
And I mean, getting to the big climax of all of this, where Snow is all set up for execution, and then, and, and clearly Snow is sick and he's dying. Aside from that, but Katniss making the decision to kill President Coin, like raising that arrow and killing President Coin. What do you take from the moment that that happens? And then Snow is just flabbergasted in his last moments of life. Like I, I find that I find that moment quite chilling. Like I understand why Katniss killed Coin, but I find President Snow's reaction to it chilling. Like he just starts maniacally laughing about it, and he's got like a mouthful of blood, and it's dark. Like it does. This doesn't feel like a victory. No, I don't. I don't know what to take from it. Like, I mean, in the end. It seems like she did the right thing because prior to this, Coin suggests that they hold a new Hunger Games with the Capitals children. Yeah. And PETA is outraged by that. And then, like, Katniss says she wants to do it and Haymitch backs her up. But you can tell they're like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We don't actually support this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's the killing of Coin that actually allows for, like, because Coin's like, oh, we don't have time to hold a democracy right now. We need an interim president. Um, but as soon as coin is dead, they do hold a vote. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like Hamish does have, you know, he says to Katniss later on, like humans tend to forget things and who knows how long this peace will last, but you know, hopefully it won't be exactly like it was. Hopefully we can have a better peace than, than we had before. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know. I think it might just be, Snow being like proud of Katniss, but also like, haha, coin got hers. I'm not sure. Well, it seems like I, I'm not sure either, but there there could also just be something to the fact that Snow has had so much control for so long and so much power. And Katniss is the first one to come along in a long time to actually surprise him. And this was the last thing that she did that surprised him. And it could be like a moment of adoration. Well, I think he does in some respects respect her mm -hmm. and sees part of himself in her. And this is what's going to become so interesting when we look at the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is um, they have so many, you mean, they're foils of each other. And that's just made far more obvious when you look at the prequel and you see them put in similar but different situations when they're young and making different choices. And I think, I think Snow both sees himself and doesn't see himself in Katniss's final choice to kill Coin because there's the part of him that's like, I will do what I need to do to survive and get what I want, which is present in the killing of Coin. Mm -hmm. But the other part is I am doing what's right for the people which mm -hmm. isn't something Snow would do. Yeah. Right? Like Katniss is kind of doing both at once, but should she, like Coin was never going to venerate her, so it could be a selfish choice. Like Coin yeah. doesn't really like her, but also would there have, I don't know, I don't want to spoil the the sequel, but the part of Snow that will kill any enemy, mm -hmm. the part of him that puts the berries out for Seneca yeah. And make some other similar choices in the prequel. Mm -hmm. That part of him seems to be like, ah, we're the same. Yeah. 
but I think he's failing to see the way that they're not. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so interesting. I feel like Donald Sutherland does such a good job with snow. Donald Southey. He crushes it. He is. He's great. And Um, then we get into the, like the ending ending and you really, I mean, this is a bit of a diversion, but you really feel the choice that the filmmakers made to make sure that Philip Seymour Hoffman was in the film, but also where they're trying to like, adapt for the fact that he didn't film certain scenes like you can tell that they reused some footage and superimposed it in spots to make sure that he was there Mm -hmm. and then this like final scene with Hamish and Katniss feels like it would have been between Plutarch and Katniss because he's like I'm gonna read you a letter from Plutarch (laughs) yeah um so I, I I think it's admirable that they wanted to make sure that the last footage filmed of Philip Seymour Hoffman was made use of but it does feel clunky character wise at some points because of what they didn't manage to film. Yeah. Um, There's something missing, but I do really like that. That story feels right for Katniss of we're going to send you back to district 12. We're going to put you in exile. Eventually we'll pardon you. But like, it feels like we way preemptively talked about actually really like this ending for her. Um, You know, at the beginning of the first film, she tells Gail, she wants to run away. Mm -hmm. And, just live a quiet life and that like, she's never going to have kids in a world like this. And the fact that she gets to live this quiet, sweet life that isn't easy. Like the end of the film alludes to like the trauma will never leave her. Like Mm -hmm. she will never get off that train that she was put on and neither will PETA, but at least they are working through that together and they're building a life of purpose and they're staying out of the spectacle. Yeah. Like that she's choosing now that she's been pardoned, she's still choosing to stay away from the spectacle. And I think I, re- I actually do. I'm really moved by the final lines of like when I'm overwhelmed by the bleakness and sadness and trauma of life. I make a list of all of the good things I've ever seen a person do. And then that final line of like, there are worse games to play mm-hmm. is any, and just like this reckoning that, you know, her and Peta one day are going to have to talk to their kids about their complicity in, in the system and, and who they were and the fame that they have. And I actually think there's a lot of heft and complexity to that final scene. And I really like seeing Katniss and Peta get a life of peace and a, and a life where they choose to care for one another through the trauma. But I also feel like there's a lot of complexity to what they're having to hold within them and will in the future as well. Yeah. I feel like and I'm, I'm projecting, but I feel like in a world where there isn't support uh, of any means really, but especially for dealing with mental health stuff or trauma, Katniss being with PETA, I feel is going to be a lot more helpful for each of them than if she were to end up with Gail. Because I feel like they have gone through similar things together. They have their own individual traumas, but it stems from a similar being in a similar situation at a, at the same time that they'll be able to talk about and unpack. And then also Katniss being there for Peta after he went through all the torture he went through um, when he was being held captive by the Capitol. Well, so like, one of the things that I said about. Um, these films, no, I said it about The Matrix, but I would also say it about <laughs> these films is that 
there's an earnestness to the way that they're written in the original books and to the way that they're shot and the way that they're acted that if you want to be a cynic, you can see it as cheesy. Yeah. But if you're willing to accept the earnestness that the films offer you, I think there's actually a lot there. So there's this element in this film that you could see as cheesy where Peta has been tortured and had his memories altered. And as he's trying to, you know, Katniss doesn't give up on him, even though it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Like him hating her is really hard. And, you know, she's hated herself a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And so there's this thing he starts doing where he, well, it's, I actually find it so beautiful where we don't get as much time with Finnick as there is in the books and his relationship with Annie, but Annie struggles um, psychologically as well. And Pete is like, how do I know what's real and not real? And Finnick says, just ask that. What, that's what Annie does. Like, just ask and trust that, know that Katniss won't lie to you. Trust that she won't lie to you. And so there's this line that keeps repeating where he says something and then he says real or not real. Mm-hmm. And in the end, even though they don't use this language again, I feel like if you use that language of real and not real, like the spectacle of the Capitol, the spectacle of the Hunger Games was never real. Yeah. What they forced, you know, Katniss and Peter to do about their, like, saying like saying they were in love on TV rather than to each other and getting engaged and all of that was not real. And in the end, I feel like they've chosen a life that's real Mm -hmm. and they're like choosing to give the middle finger to anything not real. And I get the impression that like Katniss and PETA will be honest with their children about the part that they played and the good and the bad of it. They won't, they won't make a not real version for them. And I think that that's actually really beautiful. Yeah. And I think that there is, there's beauty there, but I also think that there is sadness because like they've created this life that I'd say is emblematic of hope, but I wouldn't doubt that PETA will continue asking that question of Katniss throughout their lives. Well, and Katniss is always going to have lost her sister mm-hmm. and Finnick and Cinna and, Rue. you know, and you get this impression that like, you know, there's some beautiful stuff where, like, I believe Hamish and Effie, like, come out to their place and, like, have dinner with them. But, like, those people are off living their own lives, too. And um, I don't know if it's said in the film, but in the books, like, Gail goes to District 2 and mm-hmm. her mom goes elsewhere and, like, people kind of choose their own lives. So, yeah, it's like a it's a melancholic yet hopeful ending. And I actually think it's a really brilliant ending. And when I read them in my early 20s, I was like, chance up with Peta. And now I'm like, I actually think that that's like. Right. And beautiful, like choosing Mm -hmm. a peaceful life where you work hard to care for somebody else and have them care for you is actually beautiful. Yeah. And I I think I like it even more after having this conversation. I, the, the, the film itself doesn't overall work for me. Like you said, like we're just kind of racing to get to the climax, which is the best part of the film and doesn't really happen until the end of the film. But I think that where it leaves the series is in such a, yeah, you put it really well, like a melancholic, beautiful, complex place that makes the overall series worth visiting and revisiting time and time again. And I can see myself discovering new things and itself and it opening itself up to me in new ways as we rewatch it when we're, when we get older and as I'm sure we'll show it to the nibblings we have. Yeah. This would be fun to watch with, with the little ones. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what a close. And 
man, it's just just a roller coaster for me, especially. My opinions have changed a lot <laughs> since we started this episode. And watching them all in quick succession is it's a lot. Not as intense as ten Saw movies. No, in nine days, but nothing will be. Yeah. How does Mocking J Part Two make you feel? Appreciative of its complex highs and lows. How does it make you feel? An almost satisfied sense of closure. <laughs> Not quite, but yeah. you know. Almost. Okay. Last one. We went and saw the new, the latest film in the Hunger Games series titled The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. So it's from 2023. Francis Lawrence returns to direct and it's written by Michael Leslie and Michael Arndt based off the novel by Suzanne Collins. It stars Rachel Zegler as Lucy Gray Baird, Tom Blythe as Coriolanus Snow, Viola Davis as Dr. Gall, Hunter Schaefer as Tigress, and Josh Andreas Rivera as Sejanus Plinth. Also, Peter Dinklage as Casca Highbottom and Jason Schwartzman as Lucky Flickerman. Synopsis. Coriolanus Snow mentors and develops feelings for the female District 12 tribute during the 10th Hunger Games. So it's a prequel. What'd you think of it? Before we get talking about it, a reminder that we are going to have spoilers for this brand new movie. We've avoided them in the previous four conversations, but we're not going to talk about it on its own and in tandem with the other films. So if you have not yet seen The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes and you care about spoilers, dip out and come back when you've watched it. We timestamp everything in the show notes so you can easily find it again when you're ready to listen to this portion of the show or listen to it now. Um, what did I think of it? Okay. Let's just start with the boy is cute. Let's get it out of the way. Very cute. He is a handsome man. He's 28, so I'm allowed to think so. Um, <laughs> just like skinny boys in white shirts. They get me every time, you know? Um, I also really liked their little uniforms with like the skirt pants combo. thought it was. Yeah. I, I liked the like fluidity of it. I thought it was. Um, I thought he looked handsome in that. <laughs> um, okay. So I just mentioned how. The previous four films can be cheesy unless you accept their earnestness, in which case I think they're quite sincere and really lovely. There's something about this one that's too hammy for me. Go on. That doesn't feel earnest. It just feels a little hammy. Yeah, I feel the same way. Like it feels more like over the top character to me. The characters don't feel as grounded. Some of them do. But particularly Lucy Gray and Dr. Gall come across to me as like too over the top. Yeah, Viola Davis is just chewing the scenery. And she just made me laugh, not because what she was saying was funny, but it's just like, goddamn, you just dial it up to 11. Yeah, whereas Donald Sutherland is snow is like subtle in his maliciousness mm-hmm. and like sinister nature. Whereas like Gall, it's like anyone can see from a mile away that you suck. <laughs> yeah. So that didn't totally work for me and it felt discordant from the more realized characters and more like subtly realized characters in the initial films. I will say I've also read this book and I read it pretty recently. I borrowed it from a friend who wanted it back before the film. Um and so I read it in August and a little bit into September. Uh, so pretty recently, and I and I felt that way in the books too. I was like, oh mm. my goodness, these Covey characters are kind of annoying. Like, so they've got their twang, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
you did say after the fact, like you were kind of asking me questions if I got certain things in the film that were certainly more subtle. And then you kind of helped fill in some of the gaps for me because you had read the book more recently. Yeah, there was just like some pieces that felt like were would have been more fleshed out in the book or would have been more blatant. And you, I mean, the book is like, I think almost 500 pages. And when you take that, generally they say a page of script is a minute of film. If they were going to genuinely make the full book, it'd be like 600 minutes. Yeah. Um, so once again, could have been a miniseries, <laughs> yeah. could have been a TV show. Um, I guess that Francis Lawrence toyed with the idea of doing a two part film, but he regrets doing it for Mockingjay. So he decided not to. Interesting. Um, hmm. And so what I think that results in is I actually think this would have worked really well as like a three part film since it's split into three parts. Like you could have had the mentor, the games. Um, I can't remember what the last one is. The Covey, the districts or something. Yeah. Um, the peacekeeper. Peacekeeper maybe. Yeah. But I do think the characters that are less hammy are done really well. I think that Coriolanus. Yeah. Don't forget the anus. Coriolanus um, as played by Tom Blythe, I actually really thought was done well. And it makes me a little bummed that other parts of the film are are so hammy because I think Coriolanus with a more subtle Dr. Gall could have had some really great like tete-a-tetes like with Snow and Katniss. Mm -hmm. I think that Peter Dinklage does a good job and I think the moments between Coriolanus and High Bottom are really good. Mm -hmm. Um, I would have liked more Hunter Schaefer. I I want a whole tiger story with Hunter Schaefer as the lead. Because I think that what Hunter Schaefer brought to the character was just so quietly heartbreaking, I felt. Like, you felt the weight of the history of the family and then also the fear and the pain of, like, we know what where Snow goes Yeah, from here. But Tiger still has faith in him. Yeah, but it's being shaken by the end of the film. Yeah. And Hunter Schaefer portrays that so well. I just, I really like her. Um, but I really hate Euphoria. Yeah. And so I'm really happy to see her in something like so not Euphoria. Mm-hmm. And I'm hopeful that she will continue to seek roles. I'd love to see her in some stuff that has the prestige of a Euphoria, but isn't made by that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I know she was involved in or has been involved in the creation of her character in Euphoria and particularly that, uh, those two standalone episodes, mm-hmm. um, in her episode. And I think she should just go write her own stuff because I really like her, but it was great to see her in this, even though I would have liked more of her. Um, one of the things about this that I find so interesting, and I wrote this in my letterbox review is what I really, really enjoyed about the book is the idea like looking at what the Hunger Games started as and where they eventually go. So these are like more bare bones Hunger Games. Like it's just in a coliseum. Mm-hmm. There's no like dome controlled, fascinating. Um, Less using the elements to your advantage. Yeah. And it's more just like we're hoping that we'll get this over within a day or two. Yeah. And it's like a gladiator fight, right? Like we're just doing it and it's done. Whereas my understanding is by the time we get to Katniss's Hunger Games, like they want this to go as long as possible. 
They want people to be invested over a period of time. There's so much time spent on like we put them in nice living quarters. We, you know, make them look pretty. We give them a wardrobe stylist. Like we, we do all of this stuff in here. It's just like we throw you in a cage and then we throw you in the arena and then you fucking die. Well, even like in the the original Hunger Games series, even the train, like the coming to the capital is like a big presentation. Here they're just in like. Like freight cars. Freight cars full of bats and other animals and other shit. Like they're treated like animals. Yes. Essentially. And I think that was so compelling when I was reading the book, the idea of like where, what elements of the hunger games were there from the beginning and what elements of the hunger games came as a result of Coriolanus. Yeah. And a lot of it comes from him saying, we need to treat them as people and we need to get people invested in them. Um, But I didn't feel like the films were as interested in that. Like as interested in or the film mm-hmm. was as interested in exploring the progression of the games and the progression of the capital. I feel like it's there, but I feel like it's not developed. And you kind of, yeah, as the viewer, I felt like I had to piece those together yeah. myself. Like even something that came up in my head while we were talking just now was there was just this willingness to let everybody die in the hunger games in this film. Like yes. it, it, during this period of the hunger games, they're just like, fuck it. Like I, we don't care. Everybody can die, but th- it is such a big deal that Katniss and PETA can't die. Like we need to have one victor because it's snow who says in the original film, you need hope. Yeah. Hope is greater than fear. Whereas gall is all about fear. Right. And mm-hmm. so you see, you know, I, I do think they did a good job by the end with the character of Highbottom because he supposedly created the games, but he actually hopes they'll end. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of a Hamish in like, he's got trauma from being like responsible for these games and the deaths of these people, even though like he didn't really want it. Um, and something that's done in the books that is in the films, but I don't feel like is very well developed is like basically the higher up academic children in the capital are used to their collective labor is used to consider what they could do for the games. So high bottom when he was in school was given the task of writing a paper of like, how could you punish your enemies to ensure that they never rise up against you again? And he created the concept for the hunger games as an abstract thought experiment for a class. In this, the same kind of thing is happening, right? Where they're saying, okay, what can your task is to write a paper on how we can get people to be more invested in watching the games because viewership is down. And that's there in the film, but in the book, we like spend time in Coriolanus's head as he like considers different ideas, as he writes the paper, as he submits the paper. And so it's there in the film, but like it's Coriolanus who first comes up with the idea of, well, what if people could send items to help their people which is such a key part of the original hunger games right like katniss probably doesn't live if she doesn't if hamish isn't able to send her that salve for her leg Mm -hmm. which she then later is able to use to help Peta as well yeah so many creams in that first hunger games there are ointments and salves and stuff (laughs) but in you know those elements were really compelling to me when i was reading the books of like oh this is where the idea of we're going to parade them out so that like people get invested in them individually came from, we're Mm going to, you know, and just the fact that Lucy Gray sings on her own and has a nice dress on her own starts to create the idea of like, Oh, well what if we strategically 
you know, made them aesthetically pleasing and fitting a theme and Mm -hmm. like the spectacle isn't there. It's just all about like, this is the public hanging essentially and not a carefully crafted escapist tool of state control that's working on you in a way you don't realize. Yeah. And I think, I think that that aspect is explored really well. And I think that if you are familiar with the hunger games, like the series and the lore, it is fun's a weird word to use, but it is fun to see all the, see and make all the connections to where we know this ends up being in 65 years mm-hmm. from when this, this is set and, and it's scary and terrifying and it is so, it makes snow an interesting character in this and that he is clearly bonding with Lucy and is seeing how fucked up the games are when he's thrown in there at first yet he's like finding ways to make it better. Well, because Coriolanus's ultimate conflict, and I feel like, again, it is more clearly developed in the book. And I know I've read the book so recently that it's just hard to separate them. Mm-hmm. Um, is the conflict between what is morally right and what will help him feel financially and socially secure. Yeah. And so he has these moments of, oh, I like this person or I see this person's humanity or I see the inhumanity of what the capital is doing. But ultimately within that, he also sees an opportunity to elevate himself and his family. Mm-hmm. And so the film is a series of moments of like, which path is he going to choose? And what I find so striking about it, when you think of it in succession with Katniss's story, is how clear the foil becomes. How Katniss is put in a lot of similar situations, but she makes opposing choices. Mm-hmm. I mean coming right down to even like near the end of the film where Coriolanus is given an opportunity to run away. Mm -hmm. Just like Katniss thinks about running away at the beginning of the films. Right. Mm -hmm. We've got these two moments and I think if Katniss ran, she really would have ran. Mm -hmm. Katniss doesn't do anything half-assed. She doesn't renege on anything. If she commits to it, she commits to it. Whereas Coriolanus repeatedly goes back on something he first decided to do. Yeah. Like he, in terms of running away, he gets farther in that than Katniss ever ever does. Yeah. Yeah. But he turns back. Right. So I do think that snow is such a fascinating character and I actually don't think the films really create empathy for him. Not in the way of like what a wicked does for the character of the wicked witch of the West. Um, Instead, I think we see how he was kind of always fated to be this person. Yeah. And that was kind of my biggest fear going into this film was, are they going to use this as an excuse to make snow more redeemable? No, or... I think he's even more irredeemable by the end of this. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm grateful for that. Um, and they add more nuance to his character and make him just like a really unreliable person by the end of where is he coming from? Like, what what is he thinking about? Or, But yeah, like you said, it's clear that he's fated to go down the path that he ends up going down. Because he cares more about prestige and power than he cares about humanity. Yeah. Including his own. Mm-hmm. Like he's willing to sacrifice his own humanity. Because I think there's glimmers of like there's a part of him that could want to be this other person. Mm-hmm. But that part of him just isn't strong enough. Yep. 
ultimately, unlike Katniss, where like that part of her just gets stronger and stronger the further along you go. Mm-hmm. She goes from being a person who like, yes, there's empathy and yes, there's a desire to protect her own, but just her own. Yeah. And it develops into a, you know, everybody's a part of this. We can't let anybody die. Yeah. Um, so I thought that I, I do think that this film and the book work best when you think of Snow's story as a counterpoint to Katniss's story. And I think that if this book was written before the Hunger Games, it wouldn't be yeah. very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think everybody does a good job. I Like I said, I think Lucy Gray's a little hammy. I think Dr. Gull's a little hammy. And not in like a fun effy way. Yeah. I, I, I just... the. Uh... I found the music stuff really hammy coming from Lucy Gray. Like I like that we kind of get a bit of the history of the the hanging tree song and that being kind of a something that is passed down th- through specifically just district 12, which leads Katniss to be singing it in her series of films. I think that that's cool, but yeah, especially the, the musical number as soon as she is picked as the tribute, and she gets up there and starts singing a song and like pulls the mic out of the mic stand. And then says, kiss my ass. Yeah. Like it just, it felt very cringy. Well, when you compare that to, because you alluded to this earlier, after Katniss volunteers as tribute, she like takes a bow, right? Uh, no. After she shoots the arrow at, right, the, right, at right. the apple. She takes a bow. Um, but they have that bow in the moment, like the same bow when Lucy Gray, after she sings her song and it's kind of like, fuck you district, you're not going to take my singing away. Yeah. And it's like, Lucy Gray's literally making a spectacle of herself. Yeah. It's because she makes a spectacle of herself that Coriolanus gets the idea to turn the whole thing into a spectacle. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of all her fault, really. <laughs> um, and so you compare that moment, which is supposed to be powerful, to the moment where Katniss just like, in desperation screams I volunteer as tribute. She's not even thinking. Yeah. She just does it. As she sees her sister being taken away, she just is in desperation. And then like, she's in shock up on that stage. Oh yeah. So is PETA. Like it is bleak. It's a bleak moment. Yeah. And then you compare that to this where it's like song and dance. I'm going to put a snake down your (laughs) (laughs) dress. It's just like, it's so petty. Like it feels so petty and not like you don't feel the weight of the, games as much as you do in that first film and part of that and again it's more developed in the books is that like lucy gray doesn't even consider herself part of the districts she's like she's part of the covey who were like a traveling troop of singers who when the wars happened they got shoveled into district 12 and aren't allowed to leave and so they don't really consider themselves district 12 and so i think she kind of thinks i'm above the games and if you're going to kill me whatever kill me Mm. um and her whole family's dead and she's just like She's not even angry. She's just kind of indifferent. Right. But I agree with you. It's when I read the books, I thought it was a little hammy in the books. And then I was like, I don't think this is going to translate well to film. Um, Everything is a little bit more like zhuzhed up and it's not balancing the bleakness with the spectacle and like even the spectacle having this like critique in it in the same way that the original four films does. And perhaps that's because we're not in Lucy Gray's perspective. We're in Coriolanus's perspective. Yeah. But I said to you, I think there's a lot more time spent in the book on Coriolanus's like 
bleak life outside of this and why he's so desperate to achieve this like power prestige and security mm-hmm. that really is just like alluded to in this um mm-hmm. and i think that that again if it was a miniseries yeah could have episodes with tigress could have episodes that like more of them when they were kids more flashbacks to when they were kids and like living through the wars yeah because i mean it was a big moment for me coming hot off of watching the previous hunger games films like tigress pops up and has done a lot of body modification to look more like a tiger. So it just like raises questions of like Tigress is really into fashion and that that is definitely her craft. But was the body modification just like something she wanted to do or was it something to further separate her from her cousin Coriolanus? And like I want to delve into that. I think that that's interesting and I, I feel like you could do that through, yeah, a one-off episode or... Uh, a, a standalone film or something like like I think I think there's things that they're setting up here that could go a little bit further and I and I would totally partake in them um just a couple of stray thoughts for me like I feel like this is shot gorgeously like there's some moments for me that looked straight out of like a Chrissy Nono movie like that's the quality of how it how it felt this has the most haunting Jabber Jay's moment when they're at the hanging tree and everybody like a row of people just got hung and the jabber jays are the last thing they heard are the screams like they're the last screams of these people dying yeah and that's something that's um i don't know if this came across at all in the movie but in the book i know that gall mentions it that they're like the jabber jays weren't really effective as they were created as the tool to like spy on rebels. Um, and so they're actually trying to round them up and like collect them. Um, I don't think the film explains this at all, but in the book it explains that mocking Jays exist because Jabber Jays bred with regular Jays. Oh. And because of that, the mocking Jay, so the mocking Jay is like an accidental mutant of a Jabber Jay and a regular bird. Mm-hmm. And in the books, Coriolanus fucking hates the mocking Jays. Like they drive him insane and he's just like, he just talks like, I think he shoots some of them at one point because he just like hates them. I might be making that up. No, that happens in the movie. Okay. The Mockingjays, it's not a Jabberjay. I'm pretty. Yeah. Cause it's at yeah. the end when like they're echoing the song yeah. that Lucy Gray is singing. Um, but it's just like, I I didn't get, get that he hates Mockingjays. I got that he hates the song that Lucy yes. was singing. And it's so effective in the book because it's like, he fucking hates the Mockingjays. And then that's the symbol that Katniss becomes. Right. Yeah. And I mean, obviously Suzanne Collins wrote this after, so she's like, you know, able to do that. Yeah, but yeah. I thought it was done really like subtly and well in the book. Cause he kind of has these like moments. He first encounters a Mockingjay when he's in district 12 as a peacekeeper and he just finds them annoying. He just hates them. They just get on his nerves and he like kind of first encounters them when he's like out spending time with the Covey and what should be really peaceful like lovely moments where they're like swimming in the water and just like hanging out and playing music. And he just can't stand that. They just echo. He doesn't like that. I guess there's like a little bit of that. It's, it just felt again, like it, it thinking about it now, it feels hammy. Cause it's like he discovers what the mocking Jays are and what they do. And then she's like, Oh, I got this fucking gillyweed that we call Katniss or whatever. <laughs> um, and it feels very just like, we're trying to beat you over the head that like we're setting up that he doesn't like the name. He doesn't like the word Katniss. He doesn't like mocking Jays, but like it's, 
it's all through the lens of Lucy. Like I, I, I feel like it could be read as later when Katniss Everdeen comes into the picture, he's just thinking about Lucy and that's why he hates Katniss. But I don't think that's the case. Like I, I feel like Katniss is her own thing divorced from Lucy. Like for sure there's threads you could tie between the two of them, but well, that's know. where I say that I think Katniss is more interesting or like rather Coriolanus as a young person is more interesting as a counterpoint to Katniss mm-hmm. because when you look at Snow in the original series, like being quite supportive and encouraging Katniss to play up her fake love for PETA, you see perhaps a like point of reflection for him now looking at this prequel film where he th- he did care for Lucy Gray, but he was willing to abandon that for himself. Yeah. And so here he's kind of like encouraging Katniss to do the opposite, to like fake a love to get herself further ahead. Um, I do think the film could have done more to convince me that he actually cares for her. The books did a good job of that, where I mm. genuinely felt like he, there's a part of him that does want to go live with her. He just can't make himself do it. Yeah. I can see that working a lot better. And like th- this movie, because it is just one movie, it has to move so fast. It's very fast. So I, yeah, I just, I didn't feel the connection and I was just kind of waiting for like the, the other foot to drop kind of thing. There's also, there's this whole other character in the books of, um, that's not present in this at all. Who's like this club owner kind of guy, um, who like traffics in food actually. And like other things, Hmm. um, because people in the capital actually aren't incredibly wealthy right now. There's a lot of like um, extreme wealth and then extreme poverty in the capital and not a lot of in between. And he's kind of like this family friend of the snows and Tigris is quite close with him and he helps the family out kind of throughout the beginning of the book. And he actually sends a really nice guitar to Lucy when um, the family now knows that Coriolanus is in District 12 later on. Um, And that character is a really great kind of coming back to and helps like be an exposition point for Coriolanus Coriolanus trying to understand his father that's Mm -hmm. a key part of the book and like high bottom and his father were supposedly best friends and he doesn't understand why high bottom hates him so much and then that culminates and they do say it in the movie but I just feel like it's not as powerful with high bottom revealing that he came up with the idea for the Hunger Games as a school assignment when he was drunk and then decided he didn't want to submit it but then snow's dad submitted it anyway submitted it anyway because they were like school partners and he was like well we got to submit the assignment and then they went on to do the hunger games and so high bottom blames snow's dad for this but we get a lot of that fleshed out through this other character who kind of like throughout the book is like helping choreo understand who his dad was and who he was he's like high bottom and your dad were best friends yeah you know As a show called Bad Dad, Rad Dad, there wasn't enough dad stuff. Like, I feel like the complexities, I, like, I wasn't sure how Coriel felt about his dad. Like, it was very much through other people, it felt like. Like, he was sad that his dad died, but they were like, don't end up like your father, but also end up like your father. I didn't, it didn't quite land for me, the dad stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more in the book, too, about his like his love for his mother and how his mother was like a more gentle person. And Mm. and that, you know, that moment when High Bottom's like so lovely that your parents could be here for your downfall because he gave Lucy his mother's um, like this clasp that his mother had and like kept like her foundation in that 
in the book, we understand that like, it's actually quite meaningful for him to part with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then using the a handkerchief later on. And mm -hmm. it's, that's what his ultimate downfall is. Cause it's got his father's initials in it and he can't like, there's no, there's no denying it was his. Yeah. Oh. Oh, I don't, I hate to be that like the book's better than the movie, but, <laughs> but I think in this case it is, I think you're right. Like that, that character that owns the club or whatever you were, you were mentioning probably would exist in a TV show. Yeah. And we'd probably have time where we get to know, know him on his own. Um, I do want to mention my favorite part of this movie, which was Jason, Jason Schwartzman. Yeah. I mean, of I'm in a movie filled with characters dialing it up to 11. He was, I was happy he dialed it up to 11. He made me laugh the most. Um, his like, I'm hosting these games, but I'm not very good at it. I loved his like, see what happens when you do things. Or this is what, this is what happens when you do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you get donations. Um, he was, he was funny. I liked him. Yeah. I thought one of the, a beautiful moment for me was, I think the character's name is Pliny, but he laid to rest, like he picked up everybody and then covered them in the capitals. I think that's Reaper. Reaper? Yeah. I thought that was a beautiful moment. Yeah, he's District 11 and I think it's a really, it's a really beautiful um, parallel to when Katniss honors Rue's dead body. Yeah. Right. Um, where a district 11 person is, is saying like, I refuse to let my humanity be taken away from me by these games. Well, I think despite it, being somebody who clearly has the like heft to just go and kill everybody. Oh yeah. And to this point seem to have done as, as such, like he, he came out as like an aggressive force, but then to like see this moment of just like realization and just being like, Jesus, like this is fucked. And then he covers them and then I think it's it's so subtle, but when the airship comes in to like drop the snakes, it like blows off the the banner that's mm -hmm. covering the bodies. So it's like so symbolic of the capital just being like, you don't matter, and what you, your actions don't matter. Like we will undo that. And yet, a character like him, like even when the snakes come in and are killing them all, and he just lets them, and he refuses to be scared. Like mm -hmm. kind of these moments of people being like, I'm not going to let these games take myself away from me. Mm -hmm. And there's a, you know, that character of, I can't remember the character's name, but the kind of like leader of the pack in the arena is mm -hmm. like too hammy for me too. But there's a moment where they say like, right as they're about to die and the snakes are getting them like, this isn't fair. I can't have killed all these people for nothing. Yeah. And like, it would have been nice to have a little bit more subtlety in that character to like, get the sense that like this violence is coming from a place of, like self-survival and not actually wanting to do it. Um, yeah, I, I feel kind of similar to this film as I do about Mockingjay part two and that when it's good, it's really good. And then it just disappoints me that the whole thing is not as good as it could be. Yeah. So I think the concept is great. I think ultimately what it's doing with snow is smart and compelling. And it just doesn't quite fire on all cylinders for me. Yeah. I'm in the, I'm in the exact same place. One thing I do appreciate, though, is that in the book, he says so many times, snow lands on top. And I just, ha I hated it. I thought it was so dumb. And he only says it like twice in here. Yeah. Although High Bottom does say, you hear that? That's the sound of falling snow. <laughs> I'm like, it's just a little, it's a little it's too much for me. It makes me wonder the snow always lands on top. Like, 
did he come up with that? Or is that like a family slogan? It's a family slogan in the book, like him and Tigress say it. There's also some really interesting stuff in the book about the roses um, right. that they don't get into in the movie, which is that where they're currently living is like the family's home, although it's kind of falling into decrepitude. And it's alluded to in the in the film that like he needs to win this, that he can keep his family's home. But part of that is that on the roof is like a greenhouse where his grandma um greenhouses rose cares for white white roses and that like this is something that's like been in his family for a long time and it's like his grandma's pride and if they lose the home they lose the roses right and that's like a key part of the book and like him being like i can't bear to see my grandma who was once this great person like lose this last thing that like people still want the roses like they can sell the roses and they're like the last kind of remaining symbol of their wealth and success in the capital. And if they lose that, then the snows have nothing. And that's like such beautiful, hefty nuance that like was just reduced to, Oh, the roses like snow had in the other ones. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> but I guess you like, you got him. It was already super fucking long. Yeah. It's the longest hunger. Games so you got to make choices about what to cut. And this is where I'm like, Francie Lawrence, I would have watched a miniseries and I would take more yeah. like I actually love the world of the Hunger Games and I think it's smart and I think it's interesting and I think it has so many thoughtful entry points to like important conversations about our world historically now and in the future through the lens of taking young people's feelings and experiences and intelligence seriously and especially young women but you know giving Coriolanus that in in this and having it be focused on a young man i think it's important and i would love to read more and i would love to watch more i just think it should be a miniseries yeah uh, <laughs> so we can really dig into the nuance of it yeah this is a universe i like to return to for its complexities and yeah i echo everything that you said like i liked this movie but i didn't love this movie and that's a bit of a bummer and like people walked out and are screaming six people it. yeah that's a lot two of people. groups of three walked out of the movie that's a lot um, so yeah, we'll kind of see how it nets out because, uh, we're recording this the day after release day. Yeah. We'll see how people feel about it, but how did you feel about it? I felt a lukewarm enjoyment. Mm. Yeah. I felt excited to return to this universe, but just an overall okayness. Let's talk about dads, baby. The dads of the hunger games. I would be really surprised if ours were different, but let's see. Who is your bad dad? No. Yep. So no lands <laughs> on top. Yeah, right. Yeah. Top of the bad dad pile, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's just sick fuck. He's twisted. He's unrelenting. His once he's made up his mind, I feel like it's an un, it's an unchanging mind and he leverages hope for the wrong reasons and out of fear he's cruel he's nasty he's a nasty ass he's a selfish vindictive petty man and i don't like him and i don't want him to be my father nah so president snow don't, don't be, be our, our dad. dad who's your red dad i picked katniss yeah you didn't i didn't um but like yeah i just wanted to be different 
I was like, of course it's probably Katniss. Just trying to be quirky. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, of course it's probably Katniss. But go, good. Tell just tell us why Katniss. Well, I think Katniss at her heart is always working from a place of consideration of others. Like even when it seems like she's being selfish, it's actually for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I'm saying that parents are only rad when they like think about others before themselves. But um, I just think that she's a character who ultimately is kind of always leading with empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like by the end of the series, we see her like doing the work of like growing and healing through trauma and considering others. And like, we see her growth throughout the films to the point that I just think she's continually becoming a rat or dad. Yeah. Who'd you pick? I pick Cinna. Well, Cinna's great, but he's only in two movies. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I feel like Cinna, what I really like about him is that he's fighting his own battle from the inside. Like, I feel like he's one of the rare people from the Capitol that is trying to stick it to the man through the only way he knows how, and that's through his fashion and his support of Katniss and, and 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 you know using Katniss and leveraging Katniss's hope and any sort of I don't know quote unquote power that she has to lift and inspire other people and I think for him like other people within the capital and he's just really supportive of Katniss and he's kind and I like that he uses fashion to fight fascism. I mean, I agree with you, but I just think he's not a big enough presence. I'm happy with him to be like an honorable, an honorable mention dad. Okay. But yeah, I mean, two sides of the coin makes for a really nice bad and rad dad. So Katniss Everdeen? Be our dad. dad. I have a bonus daddy. Go ahead. So Tom Blythe is his name? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. The boy? Um, as young Coriolanus Snow. Yeah. Long hair, short hair. Honestly, both are great. (laughs) I like that. I think they both suit him at different points in time. Like I like that buzz cut with the white t-shirt. Yeah. That's great. But I also like the longer hair with that, like gender fluid skirt pant combo. Yeah. I I'm, I'm, Taken femme Coriolanus Snow and mass Coriolanus Snow. They both work for me. Mm-hmm. I just think he's handsome. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not one to argue. I also think he's quite handsome. Okay, young Coriolanus Snow. Weed wood. But old Coriolanus Snow. <laughs> <laughs> the dichotomies. Yeah. Okay, so as our conversation comes to a close about the Hunger Games, what will you take away from watching this series? What I'm most going to take away is the like compelling world that Suzanne Collins has built and that then Francis Lawrence with a little bit of Gary Ross and of course the whole team has turned into something that we can visually engage in. I'm going to take away that this is such a great entry point, both the books and the films for discussions on spectacle and state violence and control and oppression and rebellion. And I'm always going to think that media that gets people reading is important and i hate people who sneer at things that get people to pick up a book um so 
that is what I am going to take away. What mm-hmm. are you going to take away? I mean, I'm going to take away that I had a lot of fun revisiting this series and going to see the new one in theaters. Um, I was especially tickled after, like I mentioned off the top, seeing our old movie theater ticks from seeing these in in cinemas when they first came out. And no, the series is not my most favorite thing I've ever seen in the world. And it has some really serious, impactful highs and it has some disappointing lows but I feel like overall the highs outweigh everything else. And it and those alone drive me to want to continue to revisit this series time and time again and share it with the young people in my life. And I'm just so appreciative of its importance, uh, not just in literature and in film, but also more specifically in YA literature and film. I think it is such a it's it has some really great storytelling and and such a great voice and excellent characters. I'm quite grateful for this series and I think that this conversation alone uncovered a lot more things that I love about it and and made my thinking more complex about it. So I'm appreciative of what we do as well. Yeah. Beautiful. So for Bad Dad Rad Dad, we officially consider the Hunger Games series radically wrapped. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode of our regular show every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us inside into our DMs on Instagram and threads at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating review or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these songbirds and snakes and bears oh my this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.